Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 29 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. And like every episode, you're going to get a heaping spoonful of me, Trevor Dame, and an even heaping beginning spoonful. I, I couldn't remember tablespoon at that point and then started to panic. Spoonful of my co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how are you doing? So is it a heaping spoonful or is it a loving spoonful? Because... Oh, um, every spoon with I, I share with you is loving. Because I was going to ask you if um, you believe in the magic of independent wrestling. Uh, I believe in the dark, arcane arts of independent wrestling. I don't know if I would call it magical. I don't. That that seems too uh, too happy at this point. Do you remember when McDonald's had a commercial that was? Do you believe in magic? Was the was the um, song based on, or that they that they based their little jingle on? Yes, I do. And you know what? I was loving that commercial. I yeah, was loving it. I thought that that song was invented for McDonald's, and man, was I disappointed. <laughs> but someone that may have been invented for the show, do you love that smooth segue? No. Is we have another great first-time guest. And why he might have been invented for the show is I was looking over our past guests, and every one of them does at least two of these three things. They either have had a wrestling podcast, were at the show we were covering – or they are involved in independent wrestling. Every one, every guest we've had has been at least two of those criteria, and some have hit the trifecta. And I believe we might have the trifecta here. I'll have to check on the third thing. But our guest today, you may know him as Leonard F. Carson. You might know him for his commentary work for such promotions as Game Changer Wrestling, AIW, and Chikara. You might know him as the host of the Long Box Heroes comic book podcast and the At Odds with Wrestling podcast and you might know him if you follow him on twitter as like basically the loving support of soccer dad of podcasts like every podcast needs this person in their corner uh for the first time ever on the show joe sposto great to finally have you on the show joe great to actually be on the show uh this is one of my favorite wrestling podcasts my oh. only complaint about it well i have two complaints about the show one the episodes aren't long enough <laughs> you need to start dipping into you know, Chris Zellner, David Bixen's oh, fan level where you're breaking Ooh. up shows because you've broken SoundCloud. You've recorded so much. Well, you've asked for it. Your, your family's not going to know you by the end of this one. When, when I told my wife that I was recording at eight instead of my usual, usually my podcasts end up recording like after nine o'clock Eastern time. And she goes, eight. Oh, my goodness. Like it was like I completely threw her life off. It's happened before, but I just haven't been on other podcasts in the, <laughs> uh, it, it recently. But the other thing is these episodes need to come out daily. <laughs> if somehow you guys can. Well, I was going to say, if somehow you guys can make money off this podcast because I'm making money off this podcast. I'm not sure if you guys knew this. This is my unprepared bit that I didn't tell you guys about. So uh, I have a pro wrestling tease store. It's pro wrestling tees slash dot com slash through the years. Go check out some of my designs that I'm selling. Uh, I have such designs as I came for the pure wrestling. I stayed for the John Waters promos. <laughs> Another one that has a picture of BJ Whitmer, an equal sign and a picture of Mr. Horse from Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> And another one, which is Gabe as a caricature, not unlike Calvin, but he's not peeing on something. He's holding a scalpel, and there's a small baby with a bunch of tack marks on him. <laughs> Again, that's a deep cut on the show, pun intended. But when you wear that show to a, a, an, an independent wrestling event, most people are going to give you weird stares. But that one in 100 person is going to know that they're a deep vein thrombozo like you and Matt 
and Trevor. So again, go to ProWrestlingTees.com through the years, and you can buy all these designs, and I'm sure... Oh, and I forgot the other one that says, uh, the new, 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 new streak. And on the back, it says, quote, she deserved it. Oh, no. <laughs> Joe, Joe, if, if, if anybody... If there's any positive that comes out of this podcast existing, if it's you making $14 a year from this podcast, I have to say that it was all worth it. $7 a shirt, the money that I invested to have the design stolen, I mean made. Yeah. I'll be able to put my kid through college if he decides to go to college in like 40 years. Speaking of T-shirts, I don't know if I've ever told this story, um, but um, I might have said it on a podcast once. Um, so, so apologies if it ever come up, but I created a t-shirt design that was used by a wrestler. I do not even know if it was actually, if it was actually known that it was me, but, uh, Rich Swan, um, I, I was at a, a Dragon Gate USA show in 2013, WrestleMania 29 weekend. Um, Joe Gagne was there and so was Alan Cunahan and I saw Alan and I said, you know what would be funny is if Rich Swan had a shirt that had a swan that was rich, like a like a wealthy swan. Maybe it had right, a like was like blinged out or something. Yeah, exactly. And and I was just bullshitting, but apparently Alan liked it enough that he went and told Rich Swan this idea, uh, and Rich Swan told him that he loved the idea. And of course, like a year, two years, whatever passed, and I, you don't hear anything. I even had a friend come up with like a mock design for it and to send to Alan, to send to Rich, and nothing happened. Then I noticed, I forget when it was, maybe it was late 2014 or early 2015, suddenly Rich Swan was advertising a t-shirt that had a wealthy swan on it. It wasn't the design that I uh, that I thought of, um, but it was... It was my idea, and he might not even know that it was my idea, but I'm very proud of that. So I feel like uh, any money that's made off of T-shirts from my show, it deserves to go to basically anyone who's not me. And and the crazy thing is – oh, sorry. No, go ahead. uh, I was watching a – I think it was um, one of the Trent Beretta, Chuck Taylor shoot interviews. I think they did the one – one of the ones with Ricochet, and at some point – like Rich Swan is in the background, and they start saying, "Hey, have you ever done a T-shirt where there's like a rich swan, like a really rich bird?" And like they start laughing, they're like, "That's a good idea." And I'm like, "You sons of bitches, know this is man idea, and you're trying to create this plausible deniability by having a conversation on a shoot interview years later, so you could be like, oh yeah, we just came up with this naturally yes, in front it, of everybody.' Yeah, this shoot interview took place after." April of 2013, yes, then, then, then no, the D idea is still mine. I still exactly. take credit for it. Yeah, um, this is, this is, this is, I, we don't know how deep this goes. I, I will say this. You mentioned John Walters promos, but it sounded like you said John Waters promos, which I think would have been an incredible <laughs> addition to ROH's Baltimore uh, debut. What I think uh, people had mentioned that online, and that's always a fun thing that anyone who runs in, uh, Baltimore should reach out to John Waters to be some sort of involvement if uh, WWE decides to have WrestleMania in the Washington, D.C. area. That's close enough to Baltimore. I say they should have John Waters be the host of WrestleMania for whatever year that was. I would assume that John John Waters would love professional wrestling. Yeah. The camp value, the kitsch value of it. I completely, I can't imagine that he wouldn't, especially WWE with its ridiculousness. Um, 
that said, what they what they also could have done. I mean, I know that that 2003 was only like the second season of The Wire, but they really should have gotten some sort of Wire crossover for that uh, for that show. Maybe um, I don't know. Maybe Bubbles could have been there. I don't know. <laughs> the Egg Lady. I think she's passed though. So. Yeah. Most you of the people in those movies, I think, have passed when I think <laughs> about it. You know what I mean? Like, you forget how old those movies are. Yeah, it's like whenever you watch an old movie and you just focus on the pets and you're like, that pet's dead, that pet that is dead. Oh, that's a turtle. That might be alive. That pet's definitely dead. And you just – I make everything fun. You know, I, I'm a real upbeat person to be around. I, oh, no, are I we going to have to start counting the dead people on these ROH shows? We haven't had too many yet, thankfully, but there are some. <laughs> A lot of them are dead behind the eyes, but I think we'll get to that a little bit later on. If you don't like to look at eyes when you have entertainment, if you don't want to see dead eyes, the great medium of podcast means you never have to look at anybody. You can just shop and uh, listen to podcasts, as I do, and a great place full of podcasts, if you want ones that are much smoother about transitioning to intro such as this, is the <laughs> ProWrestlingOnly.com podcast network. Check out ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances and non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. You can also join the conversation by signing up at the PWO forums. We've been online for over a decade and with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads, our message board is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the microscope forum, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present, check out all of this and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. So, yeah, it's a great message board. It's uh, got more threat. You know, people on these other sites, all these other podcasts, they always are talk selling mat- Casper mattresses and right. linens and all this stuff. They're talking about thread counts. There's no nothing that's going to be plugged on a podcast has a higher thread count than four million. And that's what pro wrestling only has. How long? How long have you been? How long have you been working on that one? That was literally spur off the dome. Damn. That's my proudest moment. Nice job. The pro wrestling only message board exists only this long because, again, not to get too far into Ring of Honor's history, it's because Kevin Steen hasn't targeted to shut it down. Isn't that what the gimmick was? That's why the Ring of Honor message board got shut down because Kevin Steen shut it down. That's right. They just wanted to get rid of it, but they were like, "Let's use this to get great heat on Kevin Steen." Because you know, wrestling fans they won't know that this is just a storyline here's another more fans they're clearly not in the know here's another mattress related plug for the pro wrestling only message board if you read the pro wrestling only message board you're not even going to need a mattress because you'll be up forever reading all the interesting threads (laughs) that are on that message board you will not ever go to sleep ever Uh, (laughs) i love the pregnant pause and then the ever um so actually I am we got so much to get into this episode. We're covering main event spectacles today and there did, is Did something of note happen on this show? Uh way I don't too know much. on the DVD copy I had there was like an abrupt <laughs> ending to a match that I vividly remember I was there live. Yeah, I saw you live. That was a, that's always my delight <laughs> with the show now is going that's Joe in the front row like you one up Dr. Keith. You're not in the second row although I think Dr. Keith might – I forget if he was in the first or second row of the show he did, but you were definitely front row luxurious, like a rich swan here, <laughs> just was, in splendor, <laughs> in your element here. I was much more prominent in the previous Rexplex show, uh, in the like center front row almost, but this one I was kind of a little bit more off to the side a bit. 
But mm-hmm. I, po- I I I spotted myself once or twice. There is at least once or twice where if if, if fans are looking at going to watch the show afterwards, where Joe is very prominent in the front row. So, um, we have one bit before we get to everything that happened on this show, and there's too much. You might get your wish about the show being longer. I'll we'll try to keep it to the reasonable length. But Matt, especially, I think we have one little update from the last show. You and I, we our last show was Empire State Showdown. We uh, covered that extensively, including talking about how it was a low-attended show and they never came back to Spencer Port. Now, I actually missed something in my research that I thought was worth mentioning. I did not find this little tidbit on the Wayback Machine at the Ring of Honor website. Ring of Honor said something completely different than I think is what can be described as uh, the truth. I'll, I will just write read what they wrote at the time on their website. ROH was very excited at the great fans that showed up in Spencerport, New York. We realized we made a mistake by running such an obscure location, and we will come to the Buffalo-Rochester area with a much better building in the spring or summer. It looks like Ring of Honor has yet another new home. And it's safe to say they never came back for a long time there, let alone the spring or summer of 2004. So, yes, it was the summer of 2005 that they debuted yeah, in Buffalo. So, yeah. um, obviously, things happened in 2004 that may have disrupted some of Ring of Honor's plans, but I always just, I always just assumed it was, oh, it was almost like the Pittsburgh area where they ran a show, or in Pittsburgh's case, they ran two shows, and decided, oh, this isn't drawing well, let's like never go back. But they actually were like, no... This is a home now. We're coming back. And really, there was quite a lengthy delay on that. It's Spencer. I mean, they're not wrong about Spencer Port in terms of, but it must feel weird to to live in a place that a company that you watch refers to as an obscure location. <laughs> and really, it's only, again, I think like 15 minutes from Rochester. Like, is that obscure? I mean, uh, eh. I'm not well, going to comment. <laughs> you you would be surprised, and Matt, I'm sure you could relate to this, that there's so many people that when you say New York, immediately they just think of like, oh, New York City, and then everything else is like some sort of like weird upstate thing. Like, aren't you like near Canada by that point? You know, anything outside of like the city. So Rochester say, literally is near Canada, though. Yes. Right. And that's and that's what I mean. It's like yeah. Rochester, Buffalo. Like, are they close? Are they not close? I'm not really sure. Is Binghamton close? No, Binghamton's actually closer to me where I am in like the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area as opposed to those. But in my mind, like Buffalo, like everything outside of New York City is just like in one little tiny cluster that you can get to within like a five minute drive from each other. I actually went to college in Binghamton. Oh, wow. you did? Yeah. So I uh, so I drove by Scranton a lot. What was the raw? There was the the raw with uh, Brett uh, Brett Hart getting attacked in the ambulance at that one. I was at. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yes, that was in Binghamton. Although I was not at the school yet. Um, but yeah. I, I do know that I went to Scranton um, uh, the summer of two thousand and four when the Chris Benoit DVD came out because that was the closest Best Buy and I had a Best Buy gift certificate, so I was buying that DVD there and. Now I feel terrible about the whole thing. Oh, well, is on. it because of your support of Best Buy or because of your support of a double murderer? Um, it's mostly the <laughs> double murderer, but um, you know, I'm you know, corporations—they're they're ruining everything. So, Best Buy does have good prices on DVDs, surge protectors, and like HDMI splitters. Not so much. They still sell CDs, don't they? CDs and DVDs. I was actually physically in a Best Buy uh, two weeks ago, and I was shocked. But like they, you know, they're trying to pick up the slack. It's like, oh, here's a section that like has toys and Pokemon cards, and <laughs> a third of the store now is strictly like 
like in your mind when you go to the mall, like a kiosk for a cell phone place, like that's a third of every Best Buy now. It's just like all the cell phones. Oh yeah, it's it's weird. It's everything is weird now. And uh, the Chris Benoit thing is a great intro because uh, uh, oh, is it <laughs> main event main event spectacles is nothing but a show about. Two men behaving badly, and so I'm like, you, "Where are you going here, man?" No, I'm just saying when you when you when you start anything by mentioning Chris Benoit, anyone else is going to look better by comparison. It's true. So it's like I'm going to talk about these people and be like, "Boy, these rap scallions!" And then when you, with the specter of Benoit looming over, it's like, eh, "Not so bad." They didn't want to do a job, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so first. <laughs> Of the two men behaving badly is every, we're we're gonna get to way too much stuff about Teddy Hart. Everyone knows that was the big thing that happened on the show. But what was is publicly known, but maybe less remembered, maybe because the Teddy Hart thing overshadowed everything, was that the original main event of the show was not Brian Danielson versus AJ Styles. The original announced main event, publicly announced on the website for main event spectacles, was Homicide versus Low Key, and that never happened. Because of the very first low-key and Ring of Honor, but not the only low-key Ring of Honor fallout, happened between the last show, last couple shows in this show. We will go to The Observer for the details. Written in The Observer at the time, Dave Meltzer wrote, As things stand right now, low-key is done with Ring of Honor. Last week, he contacted Booker Gabe Sapolsky and said he wanted to finish up and was willing to put over everyone, willing to put everyone over on the way out. Sapolsky, who is kind of a Paul Heyman disciple, goes by the Heyman belief that if a guy is leaving, you have him do one job that means something because having everyone beat him on the way out ends up meaning nothing. And fans shit on it because they figure it out. Sapolsky wanted Key to lose to Homicide on November 1st, which is main event spectacles, and then he was going to have Key finish up working two more dates in November, which would have been the double shot coming up the next two shows, The Conclusion and War of the Wire. Loki wrote back after Sapolsky had started advertising Loki versus Homicide as the main event for Elizabeth, saying he wanted to just do a 15-minute draw. Sapolsky didn't want to do a draw and felt a 15-minute time limit for the main event wouldn't fly, so he said no. Without any more contact, Loki put on his website that due to a commitment that came up in Japan, he would be off the November 1st show in Elizabeth. Nobody from Ring of Honor has actually heard a thing from Loki, and I'm of the impression he flew home on October 27th after the All Japan Budokan show. So, yeah, that's all. I mean, obviously, the one regret here is we don't have Loki's side of the story. I'm sure it's thought-provoking and hilarious. I mean, obviously, this is the Ring of Honor company side of the story. But I believe this was the first time, like, in a big way, a, like, Loki's difficult-to-work-with story came out in wrestling. Well, like, in this fashion, there's the infamous, you know, public thing with the match that he had in CZW, I think in like 1999 with Rick Blade, where the finish got botched and, you know, like it was supposed to be the finish, but either the referee didn't count three like he was supposed to because like it didn't look right. Uh, someone who's more versed in CZW could probably answer this. And uh, Loki flipped out and had to be drug out of the ring by the oh, security yeah. of the building. Oh, it's I vaguely very... recall that. It's, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So that was a public... Where he looked like uh, Ian MacKay in, in a minor threat in that poster. He's just like getting dragged. And just... Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was back when like Loki wrestled like in a full body suit almost, like a gi. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, first of all, the fact that Gabe... I don't know. So, the fact that Loki said he's willing to put everyone over on his way out... That's is the one the unbelievable part of I've this. ever in my life. Like, I don't believe wrestling's real now because somebody bought... Like, Dave printed that. Dave said, like, yes, this is a thing. Like, I would have double-checked that before I put that to print. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, for those who don't know, which I can't imagine as many, but low-key, very notorious for being prickly, hard to work with, not always being in the mood to do jobs. I mean, I know people have publicly talked in shoot interviews about how he had to be kind of talked into doing a job for Claudio Castagnoli when, in PWG when, like, Claudio was at the height of his powers. I mean, like, just as, like, one of the most over-respected men in the indies. Like, so... Yeah, it's 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 crazy the idea of it's hard to imagine not to dispute Dave, but it's hard to imagine Loki saying, I will put anyone over on the way out. Especially when as the story shows, shortly thereafter, Loki decides he does not even want to put over Homicide, who is I understand is one of his best friends and one of the guys who trained him. Maybe he means like he wants to put them over like, you know, sell for them you know, for like thirty seconds in a match. And and Matt, I was trying to think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because my memory is horrible. But low key, I think has done two jobs in Ring of Honor history up to this point. He loses to Brian Danielson clean in the main event of the second show, Round Robin Challenge. But even that show, all three guys in the Round Robin Challenge finished with records of one and one. And then he loses to Xavier after Xavier cheats to lose the title at uh, Unscripted. As far as I can remember, those are the only two matches he's lost. In yes, that's true. I mean, I guess you could, you know, you know that three-way with AJ in London. He did not win that okay, match, yeah. but he that's didn't. Right. He didn't. He, I don't think he did the job, right? Didn't uh, didn't AJ do the job? Yes, I believe. And he did lose a fall in the uh, crowning a champion sixty-minute four-way to Christopher Daniels, but he won the match. Right. That's about it. So it is crazy that he cannot lose. If if this story is true, I mean, fair is fair. Benefit but, of doubt, sure. Yes, but if if he did say he couldn't do this, that is freaking staggering that he could not. Because, again, going to the point of the story, Gabe was going to book him on three more shows. He only wanted him to lose on one of them. And he wouldn't even do that. Yeah, and I wonder I wonder what he thinks, like, to what end. Like, what does he think that indie wrestling is? And, like, how people get over and stuff. Like, like what what does he think doing that job would have done to him? That That's, that's kind of what I wonder. Like, obviously, it's not a rational thing. But, like, what was going through his mind? Uh, I wonder if Loki would make that decision now. Like, I think there's also that hubris of being young when you haven't burned 14 bridges yet. And you feel like, you know, I'm on to bigger and better things. I mean, he was working with big Japan companies. He was, I think, in TNA at this point. But, you know, sometimes you look back. I mean, we'll get to Teddy Hart. And he definitely at some time seems to show regret about how he acted on the show. But when you're young, you just kind of think there will always be opportunities for you. They, yeah. they don't butt you in the ass. But I do have one more source on this. I actually went back a few months ago and went to the lovely uh, High Spot streaming service, and they have the late 2003, early 2004-ish uh, Homicide RF video shoot interview. And Homicide is asked about that. It's uh, kind of intriguing. I wrote down some kind of vague, some quick notes on this. It's not word for word, but this is the segment. Uh, this is the gist of the segment 
when Homicide was asked about this whole incident. Homicide is asked why Key pulled out of a match against him on November 1st. Homicide said he heard two different stories. One side says a guy got disrespected. Another says a guy refused to do a job to him. And Homicide doesn't want to believe that side because Key is like a brother to him. Key doesn't like that Key and the uh, Ring of Honor office brought politics to this. He just wanted to have fun with his boys. Homicide really seems at this point like he doesn't want to um, think that Loki could ever try and fuck with him. Like if you watch this – if you've ever had a friend or been that person where you're just in denial that a friend could do something bad to you, like homicide seems in such heavy denial on this. And he continues. This is the part that gets really crazy. Um, Rob, at this point in the interview, Rob Feinstein's conducting the interview. He asks homicide if Loki has ever changed the finish of one of their matches before. And homicide says, yes, in USA pro key beat homicide the first time they wrestled. And then they had a rematch where homicide was supposed to go over, but key had it changed to a draw, which for those who don't have a memory, 10 minutes long is what he fucking is accused of doing in ring of honor. Um, homicide says he doesn't believe the things people try to put in his head about key. Rob tells uh, homicide while well, key told people he was still in Japan on November 1st, but he was actually back in the U S by then. Homicide does admit that he believes this part, and he says he was mad about that, that Key couldn't just call him and tell him the truth about that. And he says he doesn't want people saying that Key isn't his friend, though. He says he's tight with Key, they're best friends, and he doesn't believe that Key has an ego like everyone says. He just doesn't believe it. So I think, again, if you watch this, I think it comes across even better that Homicide was in deep denial. He just didn't want to believe his friend would act like this. But the fact that Homicide himself says that he did basically the exact same thing in a different promotion, I mean, that's that's not, you know, that's not the smoking gun, but that's a very, very hot gun that the smoke is just dissipated from, I think. It's even yeah, it's we- a coincidence. <laughs> well, it's it's even weirder though. Like not only that Key is doing it, but that he's not just being upfront with Homicide about it. Like his good friend, like he's actually being like a sneak about it. If the, all of this is true, and like not and just li- and lying to Homicide about what he's uh, what he's doing, like that makes it even stranger. And when we get to final battle, it's going to get even stranger. Yeah, so for for those who uh, want a little bit of a spoiler for wrestling in 2003 and 2004, Loki will come back one time in our early-ish 2004 for the second anniversary show, and that was just a panic move by Ring of Honor where the tickets were not moving for that show, so they got over their feud for one show. And then, of course, he'll come back as a regular at a ROH Reborn completion. But for the most part, for the next, like, eight, nine months, I don't know how long – he is basically out of Ring of Honor, and he will appear as uh, Matt's alluding to at Final Battle as like a corner man. But this is this is the first real public split the company ever had with Loki. First of many, and <laughs> got to hand it to hand it to Rob for asking some hard hitting questions. Obviously, it's the promotion that he's directly involved with, so of course he's going to be a little bit you know more than just reading off a print off from a message board, possibly pro wrestling only, of course. Uh, where everyone gets their best message board information <laughs> from. Threads. Right. And no one uh, will ever go to sleep ever again. <laughs> right, ever. Mm-hmm. Insomnia forever. For I don't know, man. Like, I, like, I'm always, like, I love Loki's work, man, but he's one of those guys, and this is not my thing, but the more and more you hear about a wrestler's public dealings, it you really put into question how good they are. And this is a kind of apt... Uh, kind of same but different 
Ric Flair, right? Ric Flair had this great career and everything else like that. His in-ring work was impeccable, and you hear smatterings of stories that something happened in a Marriott bar or something. But now as the years have gone on, and you hear like, oh, he ripped off high spots for all this money, and then he held up Ring of Honor for all this money, and then he got kicked out of a bar. It's like every bad story like that that I hear about Ric Flair that's like one less Ricky Steamboat match that I like. <laughs> Where it's like Aww. every terrible low-key thing, it's like that's one less match that he had with da- Brian Danielson that I like, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that laments like one thing about doing this show is that it brings up all the negative bad behind the scenes stuff that like sort of if you're not paying attention to it or it was lost to history now like you could watch a low-key match from 2002 out of context and just be like oh that guy was incredibly talented and then you're you have to remind yourself like oh but there's all this other stuff that makes him much harder to enjoy i think in actually in lots of different forms of art there are artists where you're like Oh, this person is amazing. But then, like, not only, like, when you learn about them as a person, do you find that they're, like, not such great people, but you also learn that they're not as, like, genius and thoughtful about their art as the people that actually are fans of them. Like, when you bring up Ric Flair, like, he doesn't seem like, you know, I don't want to talk shit about Ric Flair. He's still, like, the greatest, but, like, he doesn't seem super thoughtful or smart about, like, what he did. Like, he just sort of, like, did it innately. And, like, you watch those matches and you analyze them, how amazing they are. And it's like, oh, it sort of was just second nature for him. What Like, he doesn't think about this nearly as much as, like, we do. Matt? Yes. Yeah. Um, you cut out for just a second, but we got the gist. Um, Matt, I, I think the thing, the word that what you're near talking about, I think the word that I would describe is – I think guys like Ric Flair and Low Key, a big the thing that I think surprises people is how insecure they are based on how talented they are. Like I think as people, we just assume really talented people, you know, they have no reason to be insecure because we just admire their talent. But a lot of times, people that are talented are like the most insecure people, and I and I think that's what a lot of these like refusing to do jobs and things like that is is. You and I will will go like Loki's so talented. Doesn't matter if he loses, you know, five, five times every two months, we'd still love to watch him. But guys like Loki or or Hulk Hogan, you know, was all, notoriously afraid someone was constantly going to take his spot. Like super insecure people. Yeah, I'm excited sad. for the Loki shoot interview like 20 years from now where somebody does bring up all these stories and he gives those Hulk Hogan answers. And it's like, no, man, that was the office doing that. That wasn't <laughs> me. And they just move on. And they're just like, well, you're you're Hulk Hogan or you're Loki. We just accept your answers. Hopefully when you guys have Loki on the show, he doesn't listen to the past episodes. <laughs> he's so he doesn't gonna... hear all the terrible things that mm. we've all said about him. Well, uh, he's, it, he's, it says as he does, when Loki is interviewed now, does he still pretend it's all real? Um, well, I haven't watched it yet, but I know he did uh, an interview with that Alicia T- uh, Tout girl, mm-hmm. oh, and yeah. apparently he's very candid about a lot of this stuff in there, but I haven't watched it yet because I'm like, oh, he's going to say something that's going to make me like like that AJ Styles match a little bit less now, you know? See, oh. I, I've, I've never had that problem. I've always felt like I've been good at being able to separate the like the people from the, the work just because I feel like you kind of have to in most entertainment because – Everyone, a lot of people are flawed. I mean, we're all flawed, but some people are pretty seriously flawed. But at the same time, I completely understand why people can't in, like why people can't enjoy things. I think there's different levels of being able to separate yourself. Like I know if some kid I hated growing up became like a superstar wrestler, I probably wouldn't be able to enjoy his matches that much. But for some reason, <laughs> I've, been, I, I've been lucky enough that um, 
if, if, if a wrestler I know does bad things, I, I can, I can still enjoy, I can say, yeah, like Loki's a jerk or again, alleged a Loki is difficult to work with. I think that's a, a kinder, more fair way of putting it, sure. but you know, he was still super talented. And if anything, one thing that makes me feel a little bit better is I think the person Loki hurt himself hurt the most is himself. I, oh I think yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say like nothing that Loki is accused of rises to the level of like an atrocity. Like we're not talking about Chris Benoit here. So I I, I don't feel like any real problem watching a Loki match like at all. Same thing with obviously Ric Flair too. Like that's like. Some people are like murderers, and the guys we're talking about right now are not. But if I, I was, also- was low-key, I would just say that the reason that I didn't want to go back to Ring of Honor was because he offered to put everyone over on his way out, and Gabe pitched that he was going to have Deranged beat him in the same building <laughs> uh, you know, in three minutes, and that's what caused the rift. And like, what's what, what's going to do? Are you going to not believe Loki when he says that? Because that's something that Gabe probably would have done, even though he was like a disciple of Paul Heyman. Maybe this was the beginning of a Mikey Whipwreck or Spike Dudley-esque push for Deranged at the, at the hands of Loki. You know? The, the only the only problem with that theory is Deranged is sort of MIA for the past few shows, including this one. I actually was going to point that out later. I miss Deranged. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he might have been in some kind of – I don't know if he was in some kind of trouble. I, I did I, – around the notes around this time it does say that like Deranged is coming back. But for some reason he was kind of, yeah, MIA at this point. Um, let's just get to the show proper. There's a lot to get into. Main event spectacles took place November 1st, 2003 at the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, before a reported crowd of 800 fans. I'll note this was down about 400 fans from the reported number that the first show that they did in the Rexplex, Death Before Dishonor, had. And that was with, of course, Jeff Hardy that brought a lot of screaming girls to see him. So, you know, it's funny, like. A lot of times people look at the Jeff Hardy thing. I, I think I even got into it a little bit with Dave Meltzer on the Observer Message Board once a couple Uh-oh. years ago. Like not in a heated way, but Dave was like, oh, you know, the fans turned against, you know, they they they, they will not accept certain guys like this on the indies. But he, I, they drew hundreds more with Jeff Hardy. So – yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people sometimes misremember that show that actually that was at least on that one night for business purposes was a somewhat of a success. Yeah, although I'm sure that Jeff Hardy isn't the only factor in that. But, yeah, he's a big factor. But also, um, you know, once that low key homicide match, you know, went away, there really is no like, even though it's called main event spectacles, there's no really clear main event attraction on here. Like there's no world title match. Obviously, Danielson coming back to big deal. Scramble cage is a big thing but there's no like one match where you're like okay this is the main event this has been building up for a long time and it's you know what i mean whereas that one had jeff hardy but it also had a big world title match with paul london cm punk versus raven and like was probably like the biggest like feud singles match they'd had yet so i think on paper that lineup did feel bigger than this one even though this one feels certainly quite big for an roh show Right, it's their first time at the Rexplex, which was a little bit closer in proximity to like New York area. Yeah. So it was going to bring a you know a crowd that maybe not wanting to travel from you know to Philly or wherever the the more southern shows were. Rexplex a little bit closer. Right. Uh, Re- Rexplex. Yeah, Rexplex was more... their New York City building. Like even though it was out, even though it was in Jersey. Yeah. Right. And again, you mentioned Jeff Hardy. 
you know, Raven and all these other things. And obviously no Jeff Hardy on the show, but we do get guillotine Legrand. So it's like a wash, really. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I also got some notes from Mike Johnson at PW Insider at, from the from the time of the show. And we'll see if you can corroborate this, Joe. Uh-oh. Mike wrote. Once again, the heat of the building and the length of the show had a draining effect on the crowd. In my opinion, even the best wrestling show is unbearable to sit through. The crowd isn't comfortable, and this was the case tonight. He also says there were fans from far as far away as Michigan and Japan at that show, at the show. Those are two pretty different distances, but I, I appreciate Mike mentioning both of them. So, do you remember? I mean, this is this is a tough ass. This is a fifteen year old show. Do you remember if it was a really hot, kind of stifling? building at this point uh i remember it being hot but like not crazy unbearable uh murphy rec center hot Mm. you know anything like that it was a you know it was a very big building it was a kind of half shut like a half quarantined off like big like soccer thing you know and you'll see some soccer going on in the back you know promos later on (laughs) in the event but i think it was just because of the massive humanity that they had in that area that was sectioned off for the wrestling and anytime that you get more than like 500 wrestling fans around it's gonna get hot it's gonna get sweaty it's gonna get uncomfortable just due to the sheer number of people but i don't remember it being some crazy unbearable hot thing you know i think something we've learned in recent years is different people have much different tolerances for heat as we learned with like heat gate with some of the Evolve promoted shows oh, or, boy. or or what I the, mean, pro- the progress show that I which oh, I was yeah, at the pro- yeah they, they were in the Queens. progress shows yeah yeah but but you know there were people there complaining that you know this is unsafe or I'm passing out and there were people there saying I don't see it it's not great like people have a lot of tall to- different tolerances not just for heat but I feel like how comfortable they want they're willing to like the level of discomfort they're willing to accept at a wrestling show oh yeah and any show like you know just like people go to concerts where. You have to stand for three hours, and some people that's literally nothing, and some people it's like, oh god, like I can't do it. I, I yeah, can't so, stand for three three hours. So, yeah. so like going to that point, you know, some people like Joe don't even think much of it, and then someone like Mike Johnson makes a point to say that like this hurt the show to me. I felt like this was too hot for me. So, yeah, different strokes for different folks, different heat levels for different neat people. So that doesn't really rhyme. Okay. Um, Dark matches. There were a few dark <laughs> matches we did not get to see on the show. The first would be the Outcast Killers defeated Special K of Cloudy and Lit in a minute 56. Luis or, or Luis Ortiz defeated Jose Perez in seven minutes. Grim Reaper, Grim Reaper and Slick Wagner Brown defeated the Ring Crew Express in 6.59. So people that were there live like you, Joe, if you showed up in time, got to see a little three-match mini dark card before the show. Uh, do you remember any of this? Was any of this notable? Probably. I mean, I'm going out on a limb here. Joe, I'm going to go out on another limb and say it would be really weird if you remembered these matches 15 years <laughs> later. Uh, absolutely not. I have no memory of these uh, matches being a thing. I did check their cage match profiles, and I do see that Jose Perez still has his MySpace connected to it. <laughs> so I don't think uh, his world was set ablaze by this. But I think it was one of those in retrospect deals where Cloudy, uh, being a in-ring wrestling member of Special K this early, was a surprise, like, in retrospect, you know? Because uh, as we talked before, like, them going to the Rochester, Buffalo area, that's where that whole crew was, Ring Crew Express guys, uh, Carnage Crew guys, and, of course, Cloudy, and later Cheech would become part of the 
the working around crew. And I think Cheech has even been public on Twitter about it, where shows that happen literally six months earlier to this, even less, like they were still in the crowd. He and he and Cloudy were in the crowd as fans. And now here they are wrestling on shows, granted in dark matches, getting beat by the outcast killers in two minutes. But nonetheless, I think that's more so what I I'm like, oh, those are like little kids in there, you know, but <laughs> Cloudy still looks like a little kid to me. Yeah, it still, is, it, there's a few moments like that, like when we noticed and you helped point out on Twitter, uh, Colin Delaney in the crowd holding a sign at an early Ring of Honor show. It's it's weird to see like wrestlers who were fans who became wrestlers. It, it's just a weird, like you don't often, I mean, there's not many of those kind of Mick Foley can point himself in, out in the crowd at MSG moments. Edge at WrestleMania 6. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a few, and they get to be kind of famous. Right, like, Sandman oh. at that one Halloween Havoc where he's painted up like Sting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, thing, the thing that I noticed, you mentioned Grim Reefer. Like, did... The is the is the original version of the Rottweilers with Grim Reefer and Slugger already gone? Because he's teaming with somebody else now. Does is Slugger like just gone for good? Like I don't remember, but I think it's possible uh, that Slugger is just done. I'm not. I'm not sure. I've been believe it or not, man. I've not been keeping up to date on the last <laughs> appearance of Slugger. Although oh, I man. could, but but yeah, it, it's certain things in Ring of Honor at this point. They're just. I think we talked on the last show how it seems like they're kind of in a transition period. Certain things are just seem to kind of peter out at this point, like not with sharp, definitive ends. Just kind of well, this isn't working. I think the other the other thing with this is Ring of Honor, much like ECW of its time, is trying to hold itself up to a little bit more lofty of. Uh, a stature, essentially trying to put themselves as like the number three promotion, ECW behind WWF and WCW, Ring of Honor at this point behind WWF. I don't know if it was WWE at the point, but TNA. But we like because they're trying to hold themselves up like that. We kind of forget that they're just an indie. You know, they're no different than any other indie at the end of the day. So when dudes come and go, it's more noticeable because your local Joe Schmo indie doesn't do angles and storylines and all this other stuff. Yeah. Ring of Honor is and ECW did. So when they're building a guy up in a storyline, no matter how big the storyline is, and then all of a sudden that guy's just gone or that guy's moved to something else. It's much more noticeable than, you know, some guy in your local indie working three different things over three different shows just because that's the role that he needed to do for that show. That's true. And hey, it's not like that never happens in WWE either, you know, where they <laughs> where they was just people and storylines are just dropped. And actually, you know, that's going back forever that, that that's another happened. way that Ring of Honor innovated and WWE just stole another idea. <laughs> well, now WWE stole the heart of Ring of Honor. So now <laughs> It all comes full circle here in 2018. They so. stole they stole this show's main event. <laughs> I was actually telling somebody that, and they're like, that's on SmackDown this week. I'm like, this is one of the first times it happened. I was all serious <laughs> on it. I'm like, uh, you know, you look at them and you look how little they are. They're so adorable. Everybody on this show is adorable. Fresh-faced. So Fresh-faced. <laughs> now they're old and weathered. <laughs> oh. Um. So now we. So am I. Like I'm like I can't. I can't. You know. I'm nothing against these guys. Matt. Jesus. Anyone that knows what Matt looks like. Jesus. He looks so much younger than he is. It's oh, it's infuriating. Stop, um, stop, stop. We it's all open the scars. <laughs> no. So we um we start the show proper 
with a uh, Colt Cabana backstage. He's doing some goofy meditating. I can only describe it as uh, CM Punk finds Colt backstage. He tells him it's a big night tonight, but it's more. Th- it's about more than Colt Cabana versus Dan Moth. It's about the Field of Honor tournament, and it's about. Uh, and the field of honor tournament is actually about Christopher Daniels and CM Punk who has the, and about who has the dominant group in ring of honor. Punk says Colt has no choice. He has to win tonight, not for Colt, but for Punk. So very simple, not much to this segment, just to, again, they're planting the seeds for the big prophecy versus uh, second city saints view. That will be a significant part of 2004, although not as big as probably anyone had planned. This is the o- also the only time that Punk speaks on this DVD, um, which is very unusual that he doesn't get an actual promo either in the either in front of the crowd or behind the scenes. It's very strange. So it's it's actually like I almost miss it a lot. It's like this show could have used a CM Punk promo. Now, I will say this about this particular segment. Uh, you know, Trevor, I know you had mentioned on Twitter recently that this era of Ring of Honor, and I say up to like maybe like late 2004, early 2005, every backstage promo is filmed in an extreme close up because they have <laughs> such little room. But yeah. while this promo was going on, there's some lulls in the conversation between Punk and Cabana, where I guess this was being filmed during the pre show meeting as well, because <laughs> you could hear Gabe in the background, like telling people like stuff that's going on in the show. The one thing that I clearly heard him say was everyone has to lay it in no shit punches tonight wow <laughs> I missed that hear Gabe say that now again I listened to the show I had headphones on I gotta go back it, you oh, know God. not to disturb the house my kids seen this show so many times I didn't want to bother him with it you know <laughs> but um yes very strange that there wasn't another punk promo but I say this only because this very obviously filmed before the show. I can only imagine there might be events that happen later on in the event that Punk and other people may not have been available to do promos. Oh, good point. It was one of those things where, you know, because again, on an indie show, the promoter will be like, okay, here are a bunch of the promos that I want to get tonight. Yeah, we'll either get them before the show or after the show. Or, like, this one has to be before the show or this one has to be after the show or whatever it is. But, like, I'm sure – I can only imagine there might have been a punk promo or something else where it was just like, yeah, other things happened. And I don't think Punk's in a great mood. He's never in a great mood, I would assume. But <laughs> in an extra not great mood. So let's not bother him and we'll double up on punk promos in the next show or something. That makes a lot of yeah. sense, actually. Uh, and that brings us to the first match we actually get to see on the DVD release. That is the a Field of Honor Block B match. Dan Moff, escorted to the ring by Allison Danger, defeats Colt Cabana via pinfall in 7 minutes, 25 seconds after he hits the burning hammer. This means we end with a three-way tie in Block B for the finals. It'll be Dan Moff versus Colt Cabana versus... Uh, God, I forget the f- third person. BJ Whitmer. Oh, how could I forget this great tournament? Um, Matt, <laughs> what'd you th- what'd you what'd you think about this match? So it's weird because like it was entertaining in the sense that it was like a fun opener with some silly spots, like Cabana dancing with danger, uh, and Col- and Copa Cabana starting to play, and then Moff cuts it off, and then Cabana starts dancing with Moff, and like stuff like that. But, um. The way that promo um, from the last show went, you could expect this to be a more heated, intense match, and the and these guys are both you know relatively big stars in ROH like at this point. So you'd think that they could have done like a more big deal match, you know, to was that was more dramatic. But instead, they just really had a kind of a goofy entertainment opener style match. It wasn't bad by those standards. Um, 
it just I thought it could have been much more um, given the way they built it up. Uh, you know, the usual dan- Alice in Danger shenanigans with Cabana doing the forced kiss on her, which is, you know, problematic in its own way. And, um, you know, chasing her around ringside. Um, Moff doing a lot of the guardrail throwing stuff, which seems to be his big thing these days. Yeah, he um, loves that stuff. I, I wrote a note. Moff loves throwing guys into the barricades, doesn't he? I just wrote that as a note because he's doing it like multiple times every match now since they've got the new barricades. Yes. And and another thing about this that a uh, complaint that I think I will actually repeat a lot on this show is – the heel face dynamic was just weird. Like, is Cole to heel? Like, yes, he obviously is, but then also in a lot of cases he's not. Like, if we see him at the ending promo, Moff, you know, is, I mean, obviously heel, but like, the prophecy were not entirely heels on this show. And it's just the heel face dynamics are just getting me all bugaboo. And I don't know what to do about it. And but this will roll into the next segment after this. Yeah. But this match to start things off is one of the most schizophrenically booked things of all. Cause of course we look at the promo and like punk is clearly positioned as a heel. Caban is kind of like, eh, kind of heel kind of face, whatever. So he comes out to like the ultimate baby face music. The Copa Caban is like, the fans are clapping. Everybody's involved. Cabana comes out. He's like, Hey, and then immediately like ru- like brings his hands in, like not to let any of the fans touch him or slap their hands. So he's playing heel. Prophecy are obviously heel, and they work the match primarily as heel. So now, after Cabana comes out and, like, heals on the crowd by not letting them touch him or slap their hands, he starts doing all the babyface comedy spots and everything else like that. So it's very schizophrenic as we lead into, like, the next segment, which, again, Shades of Grey, Vince Russo's book in Ring of Honor, their <laughs> secret booker, I'm saying it now, Gabe was just the puppet behind Vince Russo. Like, everybody's a heel, everybody's a face. And it's all in this one, for, like, first 15 minutes of the show. Yeah, and, and like, when you say the prophecy are obviously heels, like, when we get to the Christopher Daniels match, I would say, mm, I don't know how obvious it is. So, I, um, it's, yes, it's, this is a weird thing that happens all night, and it's, it, at a certain point, it begins to drive me nuts, as you will all see, <laughs> when I get more and more nuts. As we were talking about the show, I feel like a lot. Sometimes Ring of Honor had things that they would keep track of, where you go, "Oh, they're kind of putting more attention to detail than a lot of indies, where it's just kind of everyone for themselves." But then there are lots of other times where you look at them and they go, "Oh, they're still an indie promotion." And this is one of those things where it would just take one person kind of looking over things and going, "This doesn't make sense." Like you can't play it both ways. Like going to the Colt thing, there's been a couple promos he's done recently where he's like, you know, in the field of honor, I'm about being serious. I'm not just comedy. Like I think we talked on a recent show where he did a match full of comedy and then either before the match or after he did a promo where he was like he proved he could be serious. And it's just what the story is behind the scenes and what it is in the ring Sometimes it just, you just would need one person just to go. This doesn't line up. It's important to us to be consistent. But at the same time, it's obvious why Colt does the comedy because that was the most over part of this match. Like the first half was about as deep into the Colt comedy as he's gotten yet in Ring of Honor. Although he's been getting progressively more and more like comedy into his act. And I would say in the second half of the match where it gets more serious wrestling, the crowd doesn't die, but they are definitely more vocal and more like showing that they're being entertained when they're doing the comedy. So I, I mean, I don't necessarily blame him for doing the comedy. This is a perfectly kind of entertaining, short little thing, nothing special, but um, at the same time, yeah, he, he's in this weird position where half the time Gabe's booking the second city saints as a heel group. 
but yet he he's getting over as this big funny comedy baby face basically. Yeah, and well, I, I, well, I think I was, a lot of these higher tier guys like this, um, and this is not a knock on Gabe, but Gabe is relatively a new booker in charge of these sort of things. So I'm sure a lot of it was like, yeah, just go out there and do your thing. And yeah. like Gabe would give them ideas and we'll get to that in the four corners match, uh, you know, four corner survival, whatever match where it's just like, these are four guys just going out there and essentially doing whatever they want to do. And we're going to have to kind of try to shape this into a future storyline because that's not what I had in my head. Yeah, and and, yeah. and another thing about this match, it's the only Field of Honor match on this show. They make such a big deal about the Field of Honor, but once again, this Field of Honor match is not treated like a like a main event style match. Like he doesn't the, get much time. Yeah, he, um, he he does a bunch of comedy, which you would think if this is so important to you, you wouldn't be focusing on making both Dan Moff and Allison Danger dance with you. I mean, like you maybe would try and win. Yeah, it's no. exactly. I want to mention about commentary because, again, of course, Gabe telegraphing, he says that if Dan Moff wins this match, and that's a big if, of course, it's going to go to a three-person playoff <laughs> at this specific day on this specific show. But that's maybe. it's They're, they're announcing the match is practically happening, but saying <laughs> if this happens, it's going to happen here and at this place against these guys. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. And it's going to go this length of time. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> also... Starting the show, we forgot to mention the top five rankings. Oh, oh yeah. no. Did I write it the, down? Did I forget to I write it down? I never pay attention to them out of protest. All right. So I'm going to quit. So number one is vacant because we're having the contending for, you know, the number one contender, the trophy at the end of the night. I want you to guess what place was Xavier on the top five? Xavier, who is buried and humiliated at every turn on this show. What place is Xavier in the top five contenders? Uh, well, I would say even light shines on a dog's ass once in a while. So I would say three. I'm also going to go with three. Three would be correct. Again, <laughs> number one is vacant. Number two is homicide. Number three is Xavier. Number four is AJ, who's competing for number one. And number five is Colt. So... Yeah. Again, I think the top five is just random. <laughs> yeah, I feel like th- this is like we're getting to the the tail end of the top five being a thing for yeah, a while. Yeah, like like it's getting like the justifications for why matches are happening. They're getting like thinner and thinner. I've been and I think, I've been bummed ever since that one number one contenders trophy match stopped included a trophy. Stop, which which was <laughs> you months know earlier. Was something somebody left at a building somewhere. And then they called the building, and they're like, yes, is the number one contender's trophy there? Yes, this is Gabe Sapol's. I mean, Chris Lovey, of, or whatever his fake name is on commentary. Yes. Uh, no, this is Chris Lovey of Ring of Honor Enterprises. <laughs> no, no, we had a show there. What? What? There's, there's another show going on now, and they're using the trophy in the ring? Oh, well. We're already on the, we're already in the, the truck's loaded up. We're already on the way <laughs> to the next town. Not to cut ahead, but wasn't the trophy there tonight when AJ wins? Yes, but it's. Am I crazy? I think I'm pretty sure it was, but it had been a while since we'd seen that yeah. trophy. They, they I, I feel, I feel like it the must Rexplex. have been. I feel like it must have been a new trophy. Or maybe they left it at the Rexplex, and that's why they booked the second show there, so they can go back and get the trophy. <laughs> you know, the show around it. Them leaving it at the Rexplex sounds kind of plausible because the last time I remember seeing it was when BJ Whitmer wanted a death before dishonor. It would be funny if they just always ran at schools and they were just like, could we like borrow a trophy wherever we're at? Like just, you know, throw a blanket over the top. People don't need to see it's a wiffle ball trophy. Like just yeah. come on. But there are going to be but- some schools that have never won anything. <laughs> well, uh, 
I guess that's true. That's that's a sad school, but uh, <laughs> yep, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that's a, like a little bit of melancholy and ennui is injected into through the years. Um, mm. So next we have uh, a different kind of emotion, but a familiar one to fans of the show because after the match, Moth and Danger are celebrating the win in the ring when Samoa Joe and Jim Cornette run in. Uh, Joe attacks Moth, Cornette hits Moth and the ref with his tennis racket. Uh, Joe and Cornette celebrate to a big crowd reaction until Allison Danger shoves down Jim Cornette. Aww. Joe responds by STOing Allison Danger. And we have, if you thought before with the kissing, if that was man on woman violence, we this is even more obviously just the classic man on woman violence. The streak died, but we're now on a different kind of thing where only one show now. <laughs> Has there not been man on one bots? We've had a couple since. Um, Christopher Daniels runs in. He brawls with Joe. Joe gets the upper hand, and he tries to hit Daniels with Cornet's racket, but Daniels is able to bail to the outside. He runs away with the rest of the prophecy. Cornet at this point, gets on the mic, and he says about Allison Danger, who was taken out by Joe, slap the slut around. She'll be back on the corner in 15 minutes. <sighs> um, I have that written down. And uh, I also have 11.31 into the show was when uh, your your man-on-woman violence happened, so... Yeah. Uh, the, the, deep, the, under. the deeply liberal Jim Cornette. <laughs> uh, Jim is a... Spe- like, you know, they always say with different... You know, he's a so-and-so Republican. He's a, you know, whatever kind of uh, Democrat. Like, there has to be a special like Jim Cornette Democrat that that group is only one person as Jim Cornette. No, I think, I think actually it's Jim Cornette is a Bill Maher Democrat. Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty much exactly how I would describe him. That's yeah. perfect to describe it because people like Bill Maher and Jim Cornette, they say political-leaning things that I agree with, but the way that they deliver it makes yeah. me disagree with myself. Right, and both have said obnoxious things, to, obnoxious to put it mildly, about uh, Islam and Muslims. So I feel like they... I feel like Jim Cornette probably became liberal by watching Bill Maher, but yeah. I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to slander or anything if that is not true. That's just how it seems. Yeah. So, getting back to uh, the Bill Maher Democrat himself, Cornette says he's back in town and he gets a pretty big welcome back chant from the crowd. Cornette talks about how no one gets one over on him, including the prophecy. So he's referencing his first appearance in Ring of Honor at Wrath of the Racket, where he had the confrontation with the prophecy after he had teamed up with them. And I wrote, since this is a Jim Cornette promo from the last 20 years, Cornette finds a way to transition that into mocking Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara. Uh, Cornette says that he hears Jiffy Lube is hiring when it comes to those two. Cornette says he didn't come just come to New Jersey to get even on the prophecy, though, but to introduce the next top talent that was going to win a lot of titles and make a lot of money. Cornette does a big buildup about this. And of course, Samoa Joe thinks he's talking about him. And Cornette gets interrupted, though, midway through this tangent when the Briscoe brothers come out for the first time in Ring of Honor to Leonard Skinner's Gimme Back My Bullets, the iconic Briscoe's theme as far as I'm concerned. Um, They get a good reaction when Cornette mentions the Briscoe's by name. Cornette says he's going to back up and let Joe whoop their asses. And Cornette does indeed back up only to hit Joe in the back with a tennis racket. <gasps> and then uh, the Briscoes double team Joe. Cornette hits Joe with another really loud sounding tennis racket shot. I hope it hurt less than it sounded. Um, we get a Jim Cornette chant during this. They, they're happy to see Cornette be a heel and turn on Joe. Um, Jim plays air guitar with his racket like he's Hollywood Hogan with the WCW title. 
Joe is helped to the back, and Cornette says Joe was a means to an end. Cornette says he doesn't want to manage a guy that's already champion. He wants to manage guys that are young, lean, and hungry and take them to the top. He's basically saying, you know, like, I won't get credit if I manage Joe because he's already the champion. So I actually did appreciate his going the extra mile to explain why he would do that. Uh, Cornette and the Briscoes celebrate until Joe runs back in the ring. Cornette and the Briscoes bail to the outside. Refs try to contain Joe. And I thought this was a pretty good segment, even though in the span of two shows, Cornette has gone from heel to face back to heel again. But still, I thought this was a a, a pretty engaging segment. I I liked it, but... um... Some of this heels face stuff is still getting to me because in certain moments of this Briscoes feud, Joe seems like the heel, and other moments the Briscoes are the, clearly the heels, like in this one. And uh, I just wish I just wish it was more consistent. Right, this is all over the place. I defy you to figure out who the heel is and who the face is from like moment to moment in yeah. this segment. And then we'll even get later on when the Briscoes take on Special K, who have been built up like heels in the promotion, and Special K do like babyface and peril spots all through yeah. the match. Oh like, boy, don't know, don't get me started on that match. Yeah, Matt, Matt right. actually like felt compelled to like <laughs> message me like after that match, being like, "What is going on with this?" And and I had the same thoughts. So we are all. Right. On so, the same page. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, the the Jim Cornette stuff was great, but it definitely seemed like somebody missed their music cue because Jim Cornette recited almost the same promo word for word twice <laughs> in the buildup. It sounds like somebody like missed the cue of the music for the Briscoes to come out or the Briscoes were late coming out because even like when the music hits again, listen, watching the show with headphones on the music sounds a little bit louder when they come out than when it plays when they leave and later on the show. And when they come out, it's a hard cut to them kind of already at ringside. So I fe- I don't remember from being there live, but I definitely feel as though that was Jim Cornette killing time for someone to hit the right music or whatever it is. I did love Jim playing his guitar uh, <laughs> during the music, of course. And he even says when he goes to cut his promo, he goes, I hate to cut off Ronnie Van Zant, Jim Cornette. He's a dirty, dastardly heel manager, but he's got to put over his love for like late sixties, early seventies, like guitar rock. You know, he's got to make sure to get that over, which is awesome. I, I'm an unapologetic Jim Cornette, Cornette fan. You know? it, it makes it seem to me like like them having that music was Jim Cornette's idea because he really was into the lyrics. He likes quoting Ronnie Van Zant. I, I actually. That makes sense to me. That one of his ideas for the Briscoes was, "Hey, you should come out to this music," and they were and, just and like, "Yes, let's just do this right now." Like, and if if he did, I mean, we don't know if he had for sure if he had involvement, but I think that's like a tone perfect song for where the Briscoes are at in their career at this point, where it's got kind of that southern vibe, even though Delaware's not really that south. I don't think, but no, like, it is not. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, but, yeah, but but they they, they I, used to they used to come out with Confederate flags. What? Yeah, so they they have that southern spirit in their heart, if not in their geography but it, you know i think that song it's perfect because it's kind of like that timeless song where you can hear you know it's still a great song today i think but it does have that kind of cornet southern wrestling vibe to it too so it's the perfect time to debut it as far as i'm concerned agreed it, 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 and it was really refreshing to hear like ah uh, yes this is the briscoes i know yeah, I, I would say just you for like, you know, it's I like lots of different kinds of music, but if you're a wrestler that wants to stand out today on the indies, like find a good old like country rock type song or something that something that isn't rap or like really hard rock or metal is going to stand out like that song is always so memorable to me just because it's so different than 95% of other entrance themes. It's but, true. Um, 
I thought this segment was good in the sense of Ga- also of Gabe's attention to detail. The fact that they actually did not forget about the one night Jim Cornette prophecy feud and actually decided to kind of continue to pay it off a little bit and even tried to explain why he would turn on Joe. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's not like the deepest storyline ever. And they're obviously just trying to explain things that they wanted to do just because they wanted Cornette to be a mouthpiece. But um, I appreciate them actually trying to explain certain things, like why would you turn on Joe? So a couple details about Cornette coming here. At first, they always thought that the Wrath of the Racket would be a one-off appearance for Cornette, but re- reading in the Observer at the time, they wrote, Jim Cornette will be appearing at the November 1st Ring of Honor show in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Cornette, after working at a date in Dayton, told Ring of Honor he wasn't interested in doing more dates because he's not interested in flying anywhere. He hates flying. It was considered that is how it's going to be, but Booker Gabe Sapowski felt Cornette is so valuable because he gives a major league presence to the show, plus he hasn't worked in the Northeast in years, so he upped the money offered to him. Not sure, but think it was in the $1,500 range, and for that money, Cornette will fly. Now, this is one of my favorite things where clearly Ring of Honor read that and like had to issue a correction to Dave because in the next issue, Dave writes, <laughs> um, Dave, Dave writes, uh, let me see here. On the November 11th, Elizabeth, New Jersey show on the Cornette appearance for the $1,500 fee, he'll be doing a Q&A session that they are charging for as well as to making a videotape out of and selling Polaroids of them. So clearly Ring of Honor did not want to drive other people's prices up and we're like, Dave, Jesus Christ, it's not just for showing like it's like a double thing. Please do not make people think that they can get $1,500 from us. Like, we are monetizing the shit out of Jim Cornette on this night, please. Um, And apparently... Jim Cornette will not fly for $1,500 because even later in The Observer, Dave wrote, Jim Cornette is so adamant about not flying that he's driving from Louisville, Kentucky to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he left for the show two days before to drive by himself from Louisville to Elizabeth. So... I wonder what he listened to on the on the way. <laughs> I wonder if he had his burger towel at that time, and that's for the <laughs> listeners of the Jim Cornette uh, podcast there. But uh, yeah, Jim Cornette with his fear of the death tube and everything else like that, and driving by himself—that's that's Jim Cornette. You know, I'm glad to see in you know what here we are, seventy or how many years later it is, uh, fourteen years later, fifteen years later. Jim Cornette has not changed a bit. He's no, still no. the same. And he actually doesn't even look that different. He doesn't look that different than he did in the 80s, never mind in 2003. But, like, he really doesn't. And it's – and, like, a lot of the references that are made are very similar. He does make a reference to Hawk because I think Hawk had just recently died Um, at this point. He says, oh, what a rush. Right, after the tag title. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Hawk, actually tying this all together, Cornette's famous little anecdote actually cut from the notes, but I might as well mention it, is that uh, he always said that when he flew back in the old uh, NWA days, he would always fly next to Hawk because he had a standing agreement with Hawk that if the plane was ever going down, Hawk would punch him and knock him unconscious so he didn't have to be awake for the crash. And he always figured Hawk could do would have like the strength to knock Cornette out in one punch. So... Yeah, Cornet actually like thought that much apparently about his fear of flying. That like, if I have to fly, I'm gonna stand sit next to the big guy who is just going to beat the shit out of me, so I am not conscious for my demise. Wait, th- that would that would be good poise on the part of Hawk, where he knew that he was crashing to his imminent doom, and he was just like, "Let me help this brother out by just punching him in the face." Yeah. 
my last act on this mortal coil is going to be punching Jim Cornette in the face, not like praying or thank, like thinking of my family or any, I'm, I'm just going to punch this guy in the face because we have a deal. Um, backstage, Special K is partying, except for Izzy and Dixie, who are sitting down and worrying about their match against the Briscoes tonight. Hydro says some of the other Special K members are in a cage match tonight, and they're going to get so high. Get it? It's like a double entendre, man. And they're not even worried. So why should Dixie and Izzy worry? Special K try in vain to get Dixie and Izzy to relax and party, going as far as to offer them the classic pill bottle, but it doesn't work. So knowing what happens to Hydro later, maybe he should have worried a tiny bit, but uh, yeah, just a, just a very basic Special K segment. And this um, was one of those ones where they were doing their best not to try because they were in that same space where I'm sure like everyone was there for their dressing room. And you could see the soccer game going on behind them while they were yeah. sitting there all distraught and forlorn because they were going to have to get beaten up by the Briscoes later on tonight. And uh, that brings us to our next match. Nigel McGuinness and Xavier with Lollipop defeat the purists of John Walters and Tony Mamaluk in 11 minutes, 30 seconds. When Xavier pinned Walters after Nigel hits him with some kind of a, I would say a combination between a double arm DDT and a pedigree. And Xavier steals the pin right after when Mamaluk tackles Nigel out of the way. Xavier just grabs the pin, uh, gets another win over Walters. Uh, Joe, what did you think about the end of the historic three-match career of the purists? Well, it was sad to see them go in the, the fashion that it did, you know, with a loss, uh, you know, with Xavier beating them, of course. But uh, I do have to mention, Gabe does name the move that Nigel does to end the match. He calls it a face-first what-a-maneuver, <laughs> is what Gabe says as the finish happens. But obviously, this match, sadly, Tony Mama look, looked awesome in this match, I thought. Uh, but it was essentially just a backdrop for the continuing John Walters Xavier project that they're doing. Even though Xavier later on in the evening gets buried by everyone else, the majority of the commentary of this match is everything Xavier. What's going on with Xavier? Why is he doing this? Like on one hand, they're saying like like Gabe literally calls him a scumbag several times during the match, but then says he's he's a really great wrestler too because he was our champion, but he's also a scumbag. And Doug. <laughs> quote says i don't get confused much but i can't figure out this whole xavier prophecy thing <laughs> the, the thing that's amazing about that is it continues to be they always wonder is xavier in the prophecy still yes or no no one has asked him not one person not gary michael capetta not a wrestler every every show it's the biggest mystery that no one apparently gives a shit about like is, is only the commentators care no one actually there cares. I just, it's insane. Um, Matt, what did you think like about the match itself? Um, it was, I guess, wasn't bad. I guess, but it was, you know, glowing. <laughs> it was, um, it was kind of dull. I mean, it was pretty dull, but it wasn't like the work was okay. The low point, I think, there was this strike exchange between Xavier and Tony Mamaluke. Where it was like, uh, I don't know, like what are you, what are you guys doing? Like it just did, just it just did not fit into oh. this show. Um, otherwise, I don't know. The the purists were doing pure stuff. The crowd liked Mama Luke. He like reversed uh, a move into a cross arm breaker. It's a lot of Xavier stuff. Uh, Nigel, you know, he looked pretty good. Although that Nigel Lollipop Xavier trio, like what a trio, <laughs> right? Like that's just really weird. And well, 
Well, Gabe mentions it on commentary. Apparently, Nigel hasn't been following along with the Ring of Honor story. He says he hasn't been following along with what's been going on here in the Ring of Honor to know how hated a person Xavier was and was just maybe looking for an opportunity to get on the main card. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He's like, Nigel would have done anything possible to get on the show, even teaming with Xavier. Ouch. Um, and, and, and they try and play that with, like, Nigel wants to shake hands at the start, but Xavier stops him. So it's this idea of basically, like, Nigel doesn't really like this guy. It's just the spot that's open to him on the card. Yeah, and Xavier doesn't want to shake hands. A classic move of the prophecy. <laughs> He's obviously still in the prophecy. <laughs> but Lollipop, instead of Alice in Danger... Oh. Uh, the, oh, imagine, uh, oh my god, I just thought, imagine if they were trying to build up, like, prophecy versus prophecy, where Xavier has his own prophecy to take on uh, Christopher Daniels' prophecy. Besides Nigel McGuinness and Lollipop, who could be, like, the next member of that prophecy? Um, I'm going to say Donovan Morgan. I'm, I'm going to say just Oman Tortuga, not Diablo Santiago. <laughs> That's better. Um, um, also, Nigel, his um, his hair, it's, like, it's spiky-ish, but it's nowhere near, like, the spiky, like, over-the-top punk thing that he does when he starts becoming, like, an overheel in ROH a while later. Um, the other thing that I enjoyed about this match, not, it was not the really, really long heat segment on Tony Mamaluke, um, because John Walters, you know, he's, I guess he's getting over, but he's not that over. But what I did like was after the match, uh, Xavier looks at him and he calls, and he calls Walters a loser and he goes, sucks to be you. And then he walks to the back where the camera <laughs> follows him backstage to find Prince Nana laughing in a sinister way. So what the fuck is any of this supposed to mean? I don't know. I don't think that ever got followed up on. <laughs> yeah. um, we, well, I think what it does introduce is that Prince Nana is around and he's up to something. And that does get followed he's up alive. on. <laughs> but um, I, I thought this match was very, very average, just very standard. Um, I agree with you guys. Uh I thought the standout was maybe the final minute and uh, Nigel. I thought Nigel did some of his, you know, standard like British counter wrestling. And it was funny. Like at first you could tell the fans didn't recognize it. And once he just did it for like 45 seconds straight, they really started to applaud like, oh, this is what this is. This is cool. And um, I think the thing that sticks with me biggest in the match is not anything that happened as much as the commentary where it's classic Gabe and Doug oversell yes. where they're trying so hard to tell you that like everything Xavier's doing is the most evil thing in the world. And this stuff Xavier's doing, like he is acting like a heel, but it's the most basic benign heel stuff. And at one point, Gabe and Doug are selling it so hard. Um, Xavier throws like a chop and Gabe is like, you know, this is a pure wrestling match. What's he doing chopping in a pure wrestling match? And I just thought, yes, Ric Flair <laughs> and Chris Benoit never threw chops. Like, you can't have pure wrestling with chops. And then later, of course, John Walters throws chops. Gabe doesn't give a shit. And But it was like, even the end, the end is just your standard tag match where it breaks down. Guys are shoving, you know, our, all four guys are in. And, like, um, Xavier steals the pin from his partner, but it's not like he cheated or anything. It's, uh, you know, his partner, N Nigel, hits a move. Mama Luke tackles Nigel. Xavier takes the pin. And Gabe is acting like he just, that Xavier just committed a serious felony or something. Like, just, he's the most <laughs> evil person in the world for something you would see in any scramble tag. Like, or, just, or any tag match. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a guy, like, he's, like, he's stealing the pin by winning the match for his team. Like, <laughs> yeah, what? It, 
you know, in, in the kayfabe sense of this, like technically they're both going to get the same share of the winner's purse yeah. unless Ring of Honor has some sort of weird thing where the person who scores the pinfall on a tag match gets like 51% as opposed to 49% <laughs> of the winner's purse. Yeah, and Nigel doesn't seem angry. Like it's just... Right, and yeah, if at least if Nigel got pissed off about it, like at least that would have played into what they were saying on commentary. It's just like, you know... I, 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 there's sometimes me and Matt defend Gabe and Doug's commentary where I don't think it's as bad as some people remember, and it does have some positive points. But certainly, like, they have no shade. They have no subtlety. We've talked about that before, where if they're going to sell someone as bad, everything they do is the worst thing ever, even if it's not really that bad at all. Like, just either Xavier needed to really ramp up the heel tactics or they needed to tone it down a bit because yeah, this, yeah was, this was crazy. The only other match Nigel's had so far is like kind of like an exhibition match against Chet Jablonski. So in a lot of ways, this yeah. is like Nigel's first like regular like part of the roster ROH match. And well, what a weird way to debut Nigel <laughs> McGuinness. Yeah, just and- as a spare part. Yeah. You mentioned about the commentary, and again, I, I watching the show, you know, the first time that I've watched an entire Ring of Honor show from beginning to end in so long, especially from this era, I'm, I, I didn't realize how much of, like, some of my commentary style I may have picked up from Gabe and Doug. So anyone who's listened to me commentate a match over the last 13 years, I apologize. That oh. being said, it is time to pay the bills, and I do have to plug my wrestling <laughs> store again. But during this match... As dastardly and as horrible as Xavier was, Gabe did mention, he said, I really like this pure wrestling. I hope we get to see more of it in the coming year. (laughs) Do you you, um, accidentally on your commentary call people rich kid ravers just just by force of habit? (laughs) Uh, No, but there is like kind of stuff like that that I say where I'll say like the, you know, a heel, like the, the heel thing that I'll say is, uh, you know, they're doing their dirty tactics, and I'm like, oh, it's so terrible that they're doing these things. They're such an accomplished wrestler. They would be successful without doing this. But it's these evil, dirty tactics that they do that makes them even more dangerous, you know, some <laughs> dumb shit like that. And I think, like, that's in my head now listening to this. I'm like, oh, that's, like, right out of the game playbook. <laughs> well, um, you know what? You learn from the best. That's <laughs> just how it goes. Uh, I'll say- Rob Trongard, <laughs> me, Keith Spinsky. If anyone wants any, to any, do you have- Gabe- Sorry, go ahead. No, you go on. I was just going to ask how much Donnie B has slipped into your commentary. Oh, oh boy. God. The less Donnie B does slip in anywhere, the better. Oh, God. I, I, was, I was just going to say, if anyone, again, I always say this, if anyone wants to criticize the commentary for these shows, go back and watch the first six months of Ring of Honor in 2002. Listen to that commentary. Everything else is like fucking manna from heaven. It's true. It's true. Like Gabe and Doug, like they're the good commentary team for ROH during this period. Like they're the good ones. Yeah. Yeah. We're still a few years away from like Prazak and Lenny Leonard and stuff mm. like that. So, yeah, you know, this is it's the best of what we got. Again, as you mentioned, those first six months. Uh, guys Donnie and Eric Arjula are nice guys, but Mark Nolte will be here sooner than you think. <laughs> <laughs> and CM Punk will be mocking him on all his appearances sooner than we think. Uh-huh. So uh, next up, Matt Stryker defeats Justin Credible. Yes, it's the rematch no one demanded. Uh, Stryker wins via submission in 10 minutes, 35 seconds, when he made Credible tap out to the Stryker lock. I thought this was uh, – people – I always say that – I keep saying I always say this. I always say I always say. But um, <laughs> so I'm going to go on. To, I'm going to start putting a dollar in the jar every time. But there you go. I'm going to say that uh, <laughs> the thing about this match was I normally think that like 
I usually don't give matches lower than average. I think this is below average. Like, I, I have a very high floor. Like, this is such a... This would be a fitting if I was watching 1980s um, WWE, like, primetime wrestling house show matches. It, it, is, it is rare in Ring of Honor that you see guys doing such... Especially, I mean, credible. This feels like he could have been working in front of 25 people at a county fair. Not that, like, he's... Not that he does anything wrong. It's just so basic, so low give a shit. And then on top of that, then, Matt, I know you mentioned this to me uh, earlier. Um, the final minute, they both decide to kick you out of each other's finishers like it's mania. It, it goes from, like, a match that's the most basic thing in the world to, like, oh, yeah, you can kick out of That's Incredible when, like, that's not happening on every show. And you can kick out of the Death Valley Driver. Like, it's just... It, it goes from zero to 60 right at the very end, which is such a weird tonal thing. So when you watch this match, uh, I mean, it sounds harsh, but it, it's not that they do anything wrong. It's just so basic. And so, again, Ring of Honor, you're used to indies like this where everyone's supposed to be so hungry and so so passionate and so trying to prove things and get a job somewhere else. And you don't see many performances like the performance I think you see from just incredible here, which is just the very serviceable. This is another night. This is my living to, to summarize Trevor Dame's thoughts on this match, just incredible versus Matt striker. Yeah. Basic. Um, (laughs) I I was going to say this was the best match. Nobody wanted. That's the best way I could put it. And obviously because that really hot minute at the, at the end, which I'm going to reference a little bit later on with the match, because I thought it was weird that they put over, you know, Matt Stryker. And obviously that's what this was. I, you know, I can't remember. I don't think Just Incredible had like some sort of huge cachet. I think Gabe was still cashing in on that one reaction that he had at the Connecticut show, was it? Was it Connecticut where he had that I big reaction? Been, was it, the Massage- it was Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. It was, okay. It was, Boston area, yeah. So I think because of that one reaction, Gabe thinks Just Incredible is way more over than he actually is. But then he and, books him. But then he books him as a heel, right? And then he books him to lose. Heel. Like they don't do really anything spectacular in this match. It's essentially to get Matt Stryker over because he's got bigger and better things planned for Matt Stryker. Okay, I get it. But again, this was a match that was just there at the end of the day. I don't remember being excited for it at the time that the the show was announced. I don't remember being excited when I saw it come up that it was still on the DVD. This very easily could have been a match that could have been left off, could have been cut down a few minutes, whatever it was. And again, we're showing our hand here, but you have a spot in this match where Matt Stryker kicks out of, whether it's a finisher or not, it's a tombstone pile driver. And then two matches later, they have a fighting spirit match where they do the same exact spot where a guy kicks out of a protected killer finisher. Like they should not have had that in this match. No No way. No how. This match did not deserve to have that in there. Yeah. And and the other thing is, so first of all, I've been a Matt Stryker defender. I've liked his stuff for yeah. more than most. I will say I think the bloom is starting to come off the Matt Stryker rose by by this time of the year. It's been a while since he's had a pretty like particularly memorably good performance. And, uh, you know, his matches are actually pretty basic. And the other thing is... What like I like what is it like another heel face thing that's driving me nuts? Just Incredible is on the Carnage crew. The Carnage crew are faces. Just Incredible is a heel, even though he got over as a baby face, which is why he keeps continuing to get booked. What is going on? Like I don't understand it. It annoys me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the other another weird thing about this is like um well it's not weird but did you guys notice that even just incredible even on autopilot still has more charisma than Matt Stryker really trying like like uh-huh. just I noticed the little things just incredible does like he just knows when to look at the crowd to like keep a chant going or to engage them just just little things like that and I felt like Credible's doing this in his sleep, and he's still getting, like, all the chance. And granted, part of that's an un- unfair comparison because Credible is the much bigger name. He's gotten t- big TV exposure. But still, a lot of this match is just the crowd entertain themselves, coming up with different chants against Just Incredible. Xbox, bitch. Yeah, and, and I felt bad for Matt Stryker because, again, I felt like Credible probably could have given this performance on any show ever. And I didn't feel like Stryker was mailing it in, but I just felt like, you're being overshadowed by like a half energy just incredible. And Gabe on commentary, I know every time just incredible, like everybody has a line, like everyone has a log line or a, uh, a a value proposition that they get over on commentary for whoever they are. You know, it's kind of like your bad guy, Razor Ramon or Big Daddy Cool Diesel. But Gabe will have like a, a sentence or two sentences for the guy where just incredible is just coming back after being encamped or imprisoned, you know, somewhere else uh, in servitude or in shackles or whatever it was. You know, I can't remember the exact verbiage that he uses, but Gabe is putting it over that just incredible was being held and paid, I'm sure, probably very well at the W be against his will for the last several years and now that he's in ring of honor he gets to be the just incredible that we all know and love from like what three years prior to that when he was in ecw or four years prior to that when nobody liked him yeah well yeah it's it's so it's like i don't i feel like you know i don't like talking trash about people like so much but just no, but it's just it's it's yeah. the circumstance. Yeah, yeah, just but ju- ju- I'm sure it's a night. You know, it, it's a shame of what's going on with his life. I hope yeah. he gets his shit together because the the few times that I've had interactions with him, he seems like a really good guy. He seems like he's really genuine. But it, it's this specific instance and the way that he's being presented is not the role that he should be in. Right, and and, and I and I just like will say like the idea that just incredible like his style was like. Like it was like dumbed down, like while he was in WWE, like that doesn't hold up. Like there's, no. there's not like this unshackled, just incredible doing all sorts of like amazing like wrestling that WWE doesn't let them do. His style is pretty WWE, even at its freest, you know. So yeah, I, I, I just like I just don't think that holds water. Matt, WWE was clearly limiting Just Incredible by not letting him take the uh, turnbuckles into the the crotch into the turnbuckle post spot as often as he wanted. And in Ring of Honor, he has the freedom to do that spot in every match. <laughs> That's does. true. So, uh, and I just, just one last thing about the commentary of this match. Sure. Of course, we're spending way too much time on this match. No, this but, is what the show's for. To spend okay. to figure out what things are like way more like pro, like conversation provoking than you ever imagined. Right. I think this was from the previous match, but I would be remiss not to mention about Gabe and his sexism toward women when he's talking about Alice in Danger and Lollipop from the previous match. I had to get it in where he mentions he says they're both hot in my book, but I'll and I'd take either one. I had to throw that in there because <laughs> far be it from me to not remind everyone what a lech Gabe was on commentary during yeah. this era. And these women had to like then after this commentary is made like like talk to him at shows and like have to like <laughs> take direction like and like they know what he's saying about them. And it's got to be a little weird. And I know somebody else had pointed out, and we're a little ways away from that, when they do the whole CZW Ring of Honor thing a year later, and Hero comes in as the CZW representative, and, like, Gabe just is like, this guy's never seen a tanning bed before, he's a fat <laughs> slob, and all these other things, and I'm like, 
that really a way to put a guy over? And like, uh, you know, listen, I'm a man of sizable carriage. I don't get out much. And I'm not <laughs> going to say anyone's a fat slobber and nobody sees a tanning bed. You know what I mean? And is that what we're looking for in Ring of Honor? Are we looking for muscle guys with good tans? Is this world wrestling entertainment or is this <laughs> Ring of Honor? You know what I mean? Like, judge the guy by his merits, not by his looks, Gabe. Don't well, be so superficial. He eventually figured it out. Eventually. Uh, Matt, I guess I, we should move on. But the one other thing I wanted to mention about this, I want just to go back to your point about Matt Stryker. Isn't it weird? Like, I mean, we, we it's pretty obvious why it's happening. But like Matt Stryker, even I, I am not as high in him at, at the his early matches in Ring of Honor as you were. But I, I still thought, you know, he'd had some good performances. Isn't it weird that like once the Field of Honor tournament started, which is a tournament where ostensibly like the main point of it was to get Matt Stryker over to elevate him because he wins it. It seems like he has lost so much steam since the start of this tournament. Like he was getting way more over just having random technical matches with guys like Chad Collier. And the second they build like this tournament that's kind of built around him, it's like all, all the, the, the juice he had vanished immediately. Yeah, yeah well, did you have a theory behind why that's happening? Because I find it weird, and I don't really totally understand why it's happening. Uh, for some reason, all of these uh, Field of Honor matches, they're like 7 to 10 minutes, and other than a couple ones with like BJ Whitmer, they don't seem like, I don't know if they're being instructed to hold back, but like they're not really swinging for the fences. Like There's been not one standout like match. I'm, not, I'm talking about, like I don't use... Um, star ratings often, but I wouldn't have even one match here at three and a half stars in this tournament so far. Like not one. Like oh, this really rose a guy's stock. Match. I would, I would, and, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, 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 I think, think maybe like they, they want it to be pure wrestling, but then it's also not particularly pure wrestling based either. So, yeah, I don't know what the deal is. Right, and what you guys were saying exactly is, you know, this was put through that this was going to be the crowning of whoever the next big star was going to be and i'm sure it was laid out months in advance and that it ends up being matt striker what against no it's not against xavier who does he beat in the bj whitmer in the finals yeah and bj whitmer becomes a bigger star out of everything for whatever reason but i think a lot of it was from the second time around the second show that there was field of honor matches and i don't want to say that it was confusing or maybe the matches weren't living up to the hype but even though we're now at this point where the matches still aren't living up to the hype, they're not that exciting, they're not that lengthy, they're not that whatever, on commentary, they're still acting as though it is. Yeah. So by the commentators lying to us about what these matches are and what these matches are going to mean, it's just taking whatever you know credence they may have further and further away. If they just let the matches kind of speak for themselves instead of this continued overhype of them, I think it may have ended up doing better in the long run. But there's no way to know because by this time, the way they're going on about it, it like no one believes it. No one believes it. It's the John Walters problem. You're constantly telling you, uh, people a blue that someone is a blue chipper before they've actually shown the fans why they're a blue chipper. Like they're having these nothing matches and you're constantly telling us how like they're the next big thing. So um, – this is, but moving on to something that's a lot more newsworthy, we have the Ring of Honor tag team title match for the night. The Briscoes defeat Special K of Dixie and Izzy in nine minutes, fifty-five seconds. When Jay pinned Izzy after hitting the Jay Driller, this was in fact kind of a pretty historic thing. Looking back, the very first tag title win for the Briscoes in Ring of Honor ever. And Matt, before I get, I know you have some thoughts about this because this is where your heel face problems really come to a head. But uh, one note from the Observer about this match, 
After the match, uh, the, Dave writes, after the match, when Cornette was going over everything right and wrong with the match with the guys, Izzy went to Booker Gabe Sapolsky and told him that he had learned more about wrestling in 20 minutes from listening to Jim Cornette critique his match than he had learned combined in his entire time in the business up to that point. First off, that just it seems like I, I just love the idea that like Izzy has like stars in his eyes like wow Jim Cornette just taught me everything <laughs> like such a weird two people to be in that story but also Matt do you do you think Cornette was teaching them how to do the proper heel face structure in a tag match because I hope he was I think that's exactly what he was teaching them and um, they sort of did it but it was weird um, should I just go right into it? Um, yeah, go 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 ahead. I mean, I'm go excited. Next. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so okay. So like, I'm gonna hold off. Like, before I get to that, there's just a couple other like funny little tidbits that I find from this match, which is first of all, Gabe calling Briscoes versus AJ and Reddy said they had perhaps the greatest tag team series ROH has ever seen. And I was like, they had the only tag team series <laughs> ROH had ever seen at that point. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is that um, Gabe at one point says the tag team titles are cursed because they like tag teams lose them so quickly. So way to put over your own titles that you're booking. So that's fun. Um, but yes, yeah, so this match, in some ways it's laid out like the Briscoes are the heels and Special K are the baby faces. The Briscoes get a heat segment on Special K. Izzy eventually gets a hot tag, and Gabe says, Ricky Morton style, but I think it's actually Robert Gibson style, right? Um, but he does some cool dives, so there's that, which doesn't make much sense because, of course, Special K are like some of the biggest heels in the promotion for months, never did anything close to a face turn, cheated to win the titles. Um, but also, the Briscoes were super over as baby faces, doing their big Briscoes badass moves. And also, Special K had a million people at ringside, and they were cheating. So, what the fuck? And also, <laughs> you know, I know like this is kind of like, I should have pointed this out months ago, but you'd think a promotion with the ethos of Ring of Honor wouldn't allow so many people at ringside, where like Special K brings out like 85 people um, to... Uh, to uh, have out the ringside. But yeah, it makes everything weird. Like, you know, they do their cool dives. Mark does the shooting star press on everybody, but he only hits Jay, and I couldn't tell if that was on purpose because <laughs> Doug didn't even mention that on commentary. Gabe had to point it out after. He's like, uh, shooting star press the outside. What an amazing move. And Gabe was like, yeah, I think he, I, I think he just hit his his brother <laughs> i love that doug was willing to act like even though it was obvious he hit nobody but jay like he was willing to act like they had hit everyone and gabe just was like no that's so shitty we have to we can't <laughs> pretend doug we can't like i love that moment so so this match was weird like the moves were good the crowd liked it but like the heel face stuff was just confusing me so much and i don't know what story they were trying to tell so i cannot say if they successfully told it um, yeah, th- th- I thought the match again, yeah, like you said, was, was, and again, the, the whole theme of the show so far, middle of the road, very average match. Although I, I wouldn't, okay. I would not call this match average. It was something, but right, I don't... it was exciting. It was, you know, it was a, a expertly worked tag team match. And I think if this was, you were not a ring of honor fan, you were not following the storylines and maybe you didn't even have commentary on, and you just watched this match. The story of this match is. Special care of the good guys. Briscoes are the bad guys. 
Maybe you recognize Jim Cornette from being a dirty heel manager on TV, and it's worked that way. But it's our notions of what Ring of Honor has taught us about their product over the last year and a half, almost two years, that fucks it up in our head. I, I think that's the perfect way to describe it, because I actually wrote in my notes, I think this is the rare match where if you didn't watch a lot of Ring of Honor, you would like this match more, because you wouldn't be so confused. Like, I right. think you hit the nail on the head. It, it's it's actually, you would, yeah, if, if I didn't have all this, if me and Matt didn't have all this history and like we, that we br are bringing to this match, we wouldn't be so like conflicted about it. But because we know who these people are and what they're supposed to be, I mean, Special K is... The clearest heels in a company with unclear baby faces and heels, Special K is very clear heel. They've right. always zero redeeming qualities. In the, they they in interview the all the time. They have an entourage. Gabe buries them constantly. Like th there is no one that's a more clear heel in the promotion. He calls the women K. that come to the ring with sluts, like he does during this match. Yep. He names every single person at ringside with Special K by name, even though they're not on camera. And then says, "And some sluts at ringside as well." Uh. <laughs> But, um, yeah, Sorry. like going to Matt's point at the start of the match, you know, it's special K who do the big flashy moves. It's, um, the Briscoes who just do more of the clubbering to take over. It's, you know, they do some heel stuff. It's, it's like you said earlier, Joe, it's special K who are the face in peril spots. It, it, it's just weird. And, uh, they, I guess maybe part of it was maybe it's a tribute to Cornette because, you know, Cornette's known for managing heel tag teams. And they do bring out the one time that the commentary ever acknowledges that the Briscoes are acting like heels is at one point they say something like, oh, they appear to have a Cornette influence now. And the Briscoes do also break out the Vegematic. So little touches like that. But for the most part, they don't really acknowledge how strange this all is. And also it doesn't work. Like the crowd loves the Briscoes. They love when the Briscoes near the end look like absolute killers when they hit like their big moves, like the springboard doomsday device. And when they win the titles, there's a big pop. So like if this was intended to make the Briscoes heels, the fans didn't give a shit. They were just excited to see the awesome Briscoes win the tag belts and kill people. So yeah, it did, it did not work if that was the case. I can't imagine that Jim Cornette, like, as you mentioned, Jim Cornette 100% laid this match out. I don't think Jim Cornette was up to date on what the Ring of Honor storylines were. And he's like, these guys look like baby faces. I know these guys are supposed to be heel. Do all these things. And I'm sure Gabe overheard them saying it. That's why he said the Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson comment on the hot tag. And based on the remarks from The Observer, I'd like to think that Jim Cornette and Izzy still have that friendship today. <laughs> it's just so funny because it's so wild to read that because so many of like the cutting edge wrestlers of today do not like Jim Cornette to say the least. And he shares, he returns that feeling to them. I don't know it's chicken or the egg, which came first, but it's weird to think of like Izzy, like just crazy, wild, high flying, scary, like baggy clothes. Izzy just being like sitting under the Jim Cornette learning tree and loving it. Like such a wild tidbit to get out of this. But I mean, both the, I'll note both the observer and I think PW insider both reported this. So apparently like, Izzy or Gabe could not tell this anecdote enough. Like just, wow, Izzy loves Cornette. But I think that's one of the reasons why they, uh, Cornette did get so many bookings is that I think some of the wrestlers back then in the, in a pre young bucks, like Steen and generical world, like really looked forward to talking to Jim Cornette. And I think Jim Cornette in an advisory role is good, but Jim Cornette being the one who is matchmaking and putting everything together, I think that's where the problem 
probably came to pass. I agree. If Internet had more influence at this time, I'm sure the world would have turned on him earlier. Yeah, that's true. Like, he adds something, like, he adds a touch of old school to the cutting edge stuff. But when he wants to basically just turn everything into the old school, that's where the problem comes. Whenever I listen to Jim Cornette in, like, 2018, it's like I'll agree with 70 or 80% of what he says and, like, violent dis- violently disagree with, like, 20 or 30%. And, yeah, I think you just need to create an environment where you can ignore, like, the 20 or 30% that has left Jim Cornette behind. Because so much of what he says does make sense, but then he'll pick out things and go, like, you just don't understand that's not the way it works anymore. Well, when he, when, have- when he gets focused on, like, believability and kayfabe and it's like, all right, man, like – it's just you're, the genie is never going back in the bottle. You got to get over it. <laughs> yeah, like you have to accept a world, Jim, where like a lot of the things you believe are still true, but the young bucks are still an over tag team. Like, like you can't say what they're doing is wrong. Right. Just ignore what they do and move on. Yeah, the, yeah. Like there's still don't let's not throw the Jim Cornette baby out with the bathwater here. Like you, you still can add a lot, but you, he just keeps getting sidetracked, and unsadly, he's become basically this one note joke. Where now Jim Cornette is just the crazy old man to so many people. Where oh, someone did a crazy spot. Let's send a gift to Jim Cornette and oh. see him yell for a while. Like that's what he's become to people. But like, you know what? This is like this is carny stuff. Like Jim Cornette knows that. Like he knows that. Like that's like. You know, he knows that's what gets him attention, and that's how you make money. I mean, Meltzer basically admitted that he does something similar, right? Right. Well, I don't think he admitted – well, okay. In an interview with Bix, I think he admitted that that's what he does, but he doesn't, like, make it public that the stuff that he does on Twitter is just to kind of, like, goad people and playing a character or whatever. But, yeah, like I said, as an unapologetic Jim Cornette fan – there are certain things when he's even talking about people that I don't agree with, like uh, his podcast a week or two ago where he talked about the most recent Game Changer wrestling show, how it's taken place in a bar. And then, of course, he throws in the caveat. He's like, well, I did shows at OVW in a bar, but here's 20 minutes of a reason why it was OK that I did it, but not OK that they did it. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm just like and then he talks about like Marco Stunt. Marco Stunt's a good kid. Accidents happen. He got his leg fucked up. And Jim Cornette's like, because this kid is small and he has passion for the business, he should never step in a ring. Maybe he should be a manager and this stuff like this. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, what would Jim Cornette say if he saw in 1994 an unmasked Rey Mysterio doing the shit that he could do? He'd be like, no, that kid's too small to be in the ring. He should be a manager. Like that logic does. You know what I mean? Like, And that's the way that Jim Cornette's head still is after all those years. And of course, everyone always says you know, he is now the person that shit on. He is Ole Anderson now. Ole Anderson, who shit on the Midnight Express for doing too much hot shit in 1984. Jim Cornette's now that guy, and he doesn't see that he's that guy. That's yeah. the thing. If he at least acknowledged the fact that he's that guy, but he doesn't. He thinks what I say is right, everything else is wrong. And the and problem it, is he'll say smart stuff for 40 minutes and then yeah. he'll say something that's behind the times or really inflammatory for five minutes. And that's all anyone will focus on because it's so crazy. And he's kind of leans into that even now. Cause again, yeah, I, I remember listening to one Jim Cornette podcast where he did say something like, I can't say that like the young bucks had a good match here because th- then people won't listen to my show. Like he literally said something like that where he is like leaning in, into this reputation he's gotten. Right. There's a lot of rumor and innuendo in regards to Jim Cornette's personal life. But I think if Jim Cornette allowed what he does behind closed doors, especially in that one room that is, that's in his house that no one's allowed to go in, 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 especially in today's kind of more free thinking, you know, pansexual sort of lifestyle. 
I think if Jim let a little bit more out, I think people would forgive him for a lot of his antiquated wrestling opinions for his more free-thinking sexual opinions. Um, all right. Well, this is this is a this is a hot take on our show. Jim Cornette, talk about your sex life. Speaking That's... of bondage, uh, coming up <laughs> is a graphic that says "Fighting Spirit Challenge." Um, Homicide defeats BJ Whitmer via pinfall in 19 minutes 20 seconds after he hits out Lariat. That was just. Did I did I miss some bondage in this match? No, I was. It was a ham-fisted segue. Yeah, that's obviously what it was. So, a couple notes before I throw it to you, Joe, on this one. Uh, First thing was this is billed as a fighting spirit challenge match. The only difference in the rules is that it has a twenty count on the floor. So apparently, fighting spirit equals countouts. Uh, Gabe kind of shits on because Gabe's been known in Ring of Honor on commentary to shit on countouts. He's he in the early shows he said something like countouts are stupid. You know the rest just ignore the count. We're not going to have them in Ring of Honor. Here in this match, Doug on commentary says they're trying something different with a twenty count. Gabe like gives it like the most half-hearted endorsement where he basically just says, I'm not a big fan of counts, but let's give it a shot. And we don't have to have it in every match. So it's like Clearly, Gabe's testing is putting the toe in the water for the pure title rules, but you can tell he's still kind of unsure of it. And then the other note is BJ Whitmer, who suffered a broken nose the last time he wrestled Homicide in Ring of Honor, apparently suffered a legit sternum injury in this match and forced him to pull out of the Ted Petty Invitational that happened later in the month. Homicide in that same shoot I referenced earlier said that BJ Whitmer is his dog and he doesn't like it when people say he likes to hit Whitmer hard. He says he got Whitmer got hurt on a cop killer in their match, but he blames the height difference. Homicide BJ Whitmer is the toughest country boy he knows. Um, Joe, like, what did you like? Was this a was this where does this rank on the list of fighting spirit challenges that you've said the story <laughs> list of that of that stipulation well fighting spirit challenge notwithstanding i don't have my best of fighting spirit challenges dvd here to you know cross reference things the the count out spot the count out thing was in there so they could do that one spot where he gets in right before the count out that was simply it the only reason the count out was in here testing the pure title rules out whatever i really like this match a lot i like the hard hitting aspect of it i thought this one match made bj whitmer a star than a thousand field of honor matches that he hung with homicide and i'm sure homicide coming to this match you know at least you know not storyline wise but had something to prove because this was supposed to be his match with low key and this was like well fuck you i was supposed to have this really good match at low key i'm going to show you that i could have a good match with anyone not to say that like bj whitmer sucks even though cm punk still continually calls him a horse not on commentary gabe still has to bring up cm punk calls him a horse uh but the true star of this match just like any match he's involved with as good as the men in the ring were beating the shit out of each other was of course julius smokes i'm gonna <laughs> let you in on a secret when I would get front row sh- tickets for Ring of Honor shows, yes, it was so that I could just show up and get into my seat and not have any problems, which would become a problem after certain things happen in February of 2004. But uh, it would be so I could be close to the ringside area and hear and see everything that Julius Smokes does. He is a huge distraction when you're there live, but he is a delightful distraction. <laughs> Um, Matt, like I, I think you like this match quite a bit. How much? How much did you like it? Actually, we haven't really talked about that. Yeah, I did like it quite a bit. I didn't think it was like match of the year level or anything, but 
I, I what I what I noticed is like this is the kind of match that people really complain about when they complain about indie wrestling in this era, which is like you know too many big moves. You know, too much no selling where people pop up after big moves. You know, the quote fighting spirit spots, where Whitmer um, he pops up after a um, after a, a T bone suplex, and they do these headbutts, and they're like hard weighing each other, and you know, like both guys are bleeding, and it's just too stiff. And then then they do a big kick out after a uh, after the cop killer, and you know all this stuff, and yet. I liked it a lot because I thought they worked their ass off and they put on a show. And, you know, sometimes that just goes a long way. Like, these guys are just like, we're going to steal the show. They pretty they came pretty close to doing that. Um, they did everything they could. The pacing was good. You know, this, there was a storyline to the match, which is just that Whitmer is shockingly tough. And and it worked. Like, the, the storyline worked. And this is, a, this is an example of... A guy really getting over more by losing. If he had won this match, I think it would have been worse for him than losing. Because that's idea, a great point. Yeah, I agree. Like it's just like you, you keep, you keep. Uh, not I agree that it's a great point. That was that sounded very, uh, very egotistical of me. But <laughs> I, 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 I like. I think that it's true though that you know him losing, which is he gave it his all and didn't quite make it over the bigger star, is better than oh he just rules over everything. And I think it just – I think the match just totally worked despite being, uh, you know, you know, a maybe a very indie-style big match. And I, I think what you said, I think one of the reasons why that is is I think WWE has proven this a lot in recent years. Fans resent wrestlers that they even might naturally like if they feel like they're getting something too soon off the back of someone else they like, like see Roman Reigns' entire career. Like it's not like they initially hated Roman Reigns. And it's one of those things where you you have to push a guy in a way where where the fans don't feel like they're just being shoved down their throat before they've completely accepted them. And yeah, so making – I think if – going to your point, if VJ would have beaten Homicide here, they would have been like, no, not yet. Like don't do it now. And they still gave him a lot. Like the key spot in this match is um, BJ Whitmer takes the cop killer. And he kicks out and he rolls to the floor and they do the, almost the 20 count. And like Joe mentioned, this is the classic – I don't know why the Ring of Honor has been doing it so much recently. But the classic – they do a stipulation and then this nothing in the match works to the stipulation except the finish, which clearly just exposes that the only reason they did the stipulation was for one spot. So that's what happens here. But then um, BJ rolls back in. You know, Homicide's really emoting and saying like he can't believe it. They wrestle back and forth for another minute. So I think this might have been the first guy in Ring of Honor to ever kick out of the cop killer. And by the way, did you notice, guys, that Gabe actually called it the cop killer again? So I guess Homicide's probation is over because Gabe used to always do that. Oh, it's the Kudo driver. His probation <laughs> officer is watching. We can't call it the cop killer. Well, now it's just the cop killer again. So I guess the probation ended. Yeah, this was super stiff. Like, there's something about these two. I mean, Homicide gave a really hard headbutt and busted, like, it looked like Hardway Blood, maybe. Like, they there's both a, got busted open, it looked like. There, there's one point where Homicide is just kicking BJ, like, punting him hard. At, like, harder than it looked like was safe. And there's something about the chemistry these two have where they hit each other hard and also... I think something that Homicide and BJ have in common is they're two of the hardest workers in the company. Like I wouldn't put BJ on Homicide's level as a as an entertaining wrestler, 
But I think both guys, it's very rare where I come away from a match where I watch it and one of their matches, either of them in Ring of Honor, and go, they weren't trying like 100% regardless of their place in the card. Like they always just feel like they're giving everything they possibly can. And in a roundabout way, I would say that this was the match that essentially has given BJ Whitmer, for better or for worse, a job with Ring of Honor for life. Because he's still there, and he's one of those guys that has just been consistently in Ring of Honor from this time. You know, Cabana's still there, but Cabana's had periods where he's come and gone for various reasons. You know, his briefs in WWE or whatever it is. But, you know, obviously, BJ Whitmer, you know, he has proven that he actually is not only the workhorse, but a horse in Ring of Honor with this match. And going to back to, I was just thinking, going back to my uh, other thing about having to push a guy slowly. Did you guys notice, or was I crazy? When BJ kicks out the cop killer, some fans actually like boo and chant bullshit. Like some fans don't feel like he deserves to even do that. So I thought that was interesting. You you do hear a light bullshit chant. Yeah, uh, not everybody, but yeah. There are some fans that are like, we don't want to see BJ Whitmer be the guy to kick out of the cop killer. But it, again, it shows just how into BJ Whitmer Gabe was at this time to kind of give him that. And I I, I think this is a good match. I, I, I maybe am not quite as high as you guys, but I think it's a good match. I really enjoyed it. It, it, if you like stiffness, holy shit, these guys hit each other hard. Yep, and it's, it's definitely the best match so far. Oh, uh, by a country mile. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, the last thing I'll mention is Gabe at one point lists off a lot of big matches Homicide has had this year when he's really praising the great 2003 he's had. And then he lists off the true the two Trent Acid matches, and he asks people to find him two better matches than those. Doug says he can't. Um Look, I'm a pretty big fan of both those matches. I, I can name better wrestling matches than the two Trent Acid versus Homicide matches. And I re- and I see that as someone who really likes those matches probably more than most. But after that, we uh, the, the after the match, the staff checks on BJ. And once he recovers, there's a big Ring of Honor chant. BJ and Homicide slap hands. Homicide slaps hands in the front row like a pure babyface, and he's almost back through the curtain when Steve Carino attacks Homicide. He beats him down, he tears at his ear, Carino screams, an ear for an ear, bitch, and leaves, so we're keeping that feud going. And then we're at intermission, where we're backstage with Gary Michael Capetta and Samoa Joe. I always love the chemistry these two have. It is so awkward, but in a good way. Uh, We get a good shot of Joe's back. It's all marked up with red lines. Gary starts trying to interview Joe about Cornette, and the Briscoe uh, and interview him about Cornet and the Briscoes, but Joe shushes him. Joe says he has three of the best in the world coming after his belt tonight, so he has other things to worry about. Joe says if Gary wants to see what Joe thinks about the Cornet situation and how he'll deal with it, check back in with him at the end of the night. I think Joe was mistaken because I think the four-way tonight is non-title, so I actually think Joe got, got that wrong, but still, standard little Joe promo. And that finally brings us to not the main event, but in some ways it might as well be a tag team scramble cage match. The Backseat Boys defeat Special K of Angel Dust and Hydro. They defeat the Carnage Crew and the what is labeled in cage match as the Next Generation Heart Foundation of Jack Evans and Teddy Hart and the SAT in 14 minutes, 15 seconds when Acid and Cashmere pinned Hydro after they hit the T gimmick. 
Um, before we get into thoughts on Teddy Hart, I think we'll do the match first. But before even thoughts on the match, a couple notes about it. So for those who don't know what the scramble cage is, picture a regular steel cage and then picture the four corners are basically filled in with like black wooden planks. Just picture a score with the four corners filled in. It was inspired by mat rats, which had big platforms on the on the uh, turnbuckles. The idea being if we put big platforms, guys can get a better foothold and they'll do even crazier spots. Uh, Dave wrote in the time building up for this match in the Observer they're also going to de- Ring of Honor is going to debut the platform for high flying on the Elizabeth show. Ring of Honor and MLW announced the same concept within 10 hours of each other. <laughs> and, it re- and it really was a coincidence. Although if I didn't know better, I wouldn't believe it either. I'm going to believe, you know what? I'm going to say this. I don't think it's a coincidence that two companies came up with the Matt rats thing within 10 hours of each other. Um, the rules for this match were two teams start and wrestle for three minutes and then a new team enters, followed by another every two minutes until every team is in it, and only at that point can the match end. Also, guys could leave and enter the cage whenever they wanted. Gabe made clear in the commentary, the cage is only there so guys can do even crazier high-flying. It's not to keep people contained. Um, Matt, just we'll talk about the entire Teddy Hart thing way too much after, but what did you just think about this as a match, what we saw on the DVD release. Um, it delivered exactly what it advertised is how I would say it. Like it was really good for what it was. Like it wasn't a great match. It was a spectacle. That was what it was designed to be. They had, you know, it, it moved fast. There weren't any dull spots. I think, uh, I think we could all agree with that. You know, they, it was well paced and they had really big high spots. Um, but you know, the Jack Evans, I think was the standout. Um, you know, it's it's funny because when the, when Teddy Hart and Evans came out at the beginning, Teddy Hart was like he was a little bit reserved the first time he was in ROH, but this time he was showing his full personality, <laughs> screaming, cursing. Um, Jack Evans was not quite showing his full personality, but he sure did show his repertoire of moves. You know, immediately, you know, it, it did, there was a big long section where he was like quote injured and he was like falling out of the ring, but like when he was doing moves, there was all sorts of crazy flips. You know, you had your um, your um, Spanish fly off of the top. You had uh, Teddy Hart doing a, a Hurricane Rana-ing Jack Evans onto guys into the ring. You had Teddy Hart doing a crazy flip dive followed by Jack Evans doing a double moonsault. Um, you know, you had your spike pile driver. And then, of course, the Backseat Boys win with the T gimmick. What? But um, other than that, it was – I just thought, like, it was exactly what you would want from the match. You know, there's – it was memorable. And they gave the crowd what they wanted, and the crowd loved it. And I really can't complain much about the match itself. Um, you know, what, what, what could you really ask for from this match other than what they gave you? I, I thought this was um, really entertaining. Like, yeah. was it, if you're looking, you're not expecting psychology or anything like that. Yeah. You're just expecting crazy stuff. And I think the interesting thing is <laughs> the restraint that Gabe at least intended for this match, where they only booked four spots off the, the scramble platform. And, uh, they had it, the four spots were, I believe, Teddy Hart, Rana, uh, Jack Evans off of the platform onto people below. Uh, Jack Evans did a double moonsault off the platform. Teddy Hart did like a twisting dive off the platform. And the SAT did a uh, Spanish fly, I think, on Hydro into a crowd of people in the ring. So they only, like, they, even though this was the big selling point, they only had scheduled four spots in the match. 
to be off the the crazy new platforms. And Teddy Hart got two of them. So keep that in mind for later when we talk about some of the things Teddy Hart said about this match. But yeah, this was just a, a uh, crazy match. And uh, before I throw it to you, Joe, I'll just say like, I agree with you, Matt, 100%. This was like the Jack Evans coming out party. Not just his big spots, but like he is still one of the greatest bumpers of his generation. And you can see like an early exchange in the match. Like the reaction the crowd gives is like a pop, but not just a pop, but kind of like, who the fuck is this guy pop? Like, yeah, like, like we've just, never, we've just, never heard of him before. And yeah, now like, he's like doing the craziest stuff. Jack, yeah. yeah. They're discovering this guy for the first time and going like, we've never seen this guy. It's just crazy. Um, Joe, what the hell was this like live seeing this match before we get into the other crazy stuff? Like just seeing these crazy dives like in the front row must have been something. Well, the one thing, of course, as you mentioned, there was one thing that I could change about the match with all the crazy dives and spots and everything else. I wish everyone was better at catching other guys because like so many people ate shit on those dives. Like nobody was there for anybody on those. And I felt so bad for them. And like I remember at the time, like just hearing bodies hitting that ground so hard. Like, you know, usually they'll have them set up these days where everyone's kind of bunched together in one spot. And then like it's softening the blow. And it's like, nope, these times like we're coming off the top and we're just splitting everyone right down the middle like bowling pins on a 710 split and just crashing and people just getting banged the fuck up and i have to mention the sats looked awesome in this match like physically like you know they were like i remember earlier shows gabe was like making fun of them for like being out of shape and i'm sure they listened to those shows (laughs) and came back and they're gonna shove it up gabe's ass and i think probably never get booked again but they looked physically really good i'm glad they got to do the spanish fly off the top um, and I would assume that the back seats went over with their finish because there had been, I think, in CZW, maybe like the year prior, a back seats in Briscoe's feud. And one could only imagine that that may have been where Gabe was going to build the back seats up with a match like this, put the belts on on the Briscoes to kind of redo that program here in Ring of Honor. And sadly, that would never come to pass. But again, it was a car crash. It was wild. It was exciting. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. Yeah, and I think, you know, you you see so many scrambles in Ring of Honor. I think the point of a match like this is just how can, for a big show like this, how can we step it up and make it so something that's over and above what you normally see? And by that standard, like, way more memorable, way crazier, you know, it, it worked, absolutely. And then it all kind of fell apart or got even better, depending on who you were. Um, so... A couple things I have to get into. Uh, there's so much to get into, but so I am hard on myself when it comes to the show. I think the show is really good. I think sometimes I do. I'm not the greatest on it, but I'm just hard on myself in general. The only major regret I ever have had about the show was on the great episode we had with Dr. Keith Lipinski, where like just like a kid, I was like, "Oh, do you have any great uh, Teddy Hart stories?" Because <laughs> I think you can hear when I w- you can hear me regret saying that as I say it, because I kind of feel bad when people do that, because I feel like this, this world has kind of enabled Teddy Hart while like kicking, like kicking him out of it too. And Teddy Hart is basically, he's just known now for being crazy. Teddy Hart. He's not known for his wrestling career. And I feel bad. Like, I feel like we're kind of taking advantage of, like, yes, he's crazy and he's weird, but, and he's entertaining in that way. 
but he's also a guy who's had real tragedy in his life. He lost his brother at a young age. I believe he lost one of his best friends at a young age. I think he probably has some kind of mental problem. I think he's been indulged way too much in his life. And he's been accused of some really nefarious things. And like, it's a sad story and we should, we should, and he's, it's a story of a guy who completely squandered a bunch of talent and it's, it shouldn't like, it shouldn't always be a laughing matter. And I felt kind of, I feel like too many people just go around and be like, Oh, what's a great Teddy Hart story. Or they indulge Teddy Hart just cause, Oh, Teddy Hart's going to do my show and be crazy. And you're kind of endorsing a guy who's really damaged. I feel like, but at the same time, I can't deny that some of the stuff he does is fucking entertaining in a crazy way. And this is the biggest thing in Teddy Hart's career. I'm just going to say, this is the biggest moment of Teddy Hart's career. I did a lot of research for this. I I listened to Teddy Hart interviews he did at the time, and I listened to two shooter interviews he's done in the last two or three years. Even today, this is still the biggest thing that comes up. Like 15 years later, this is Teddy Hart's career highlight. This is the thing he's most remembered for that happened in a wrestling ring that doesn't involve a cat. Like, and I think that says a lot about Teddy Hart's career. But all that being said, we're going to talk about a lot about Teddy Hart right now. And then other than the one match he's going to do next year for Ring of Honor, we're probably not going to talk about Teddy Hart ever again. There are parts of this that are really entertaining. There are parts of this that probably... Are sad. I'm just trying to say I'm conflicted about Teddy Hart. So I think the first thing we should discuss is Matt or Joe, like either I've talked too much already. Do either one of you want to describe what happens afterwards? Well, I'll describe what I saw in that clip from ROH Uncensored. Um, which did, you know, when did that, when did that DVD come out? I guess it was 2004, right? I don't know, but for those who don't know, Ring of Honor Uncensored was a, like a weird odds and ends DVD where it was the pre-show card of this show. It was the pre-show matches from the next show, the conclusion, the pre-show matches from final battle 2003. And then it was three things Ring of Honor had cut from releases that had never been seen before, which was the famous Conan versus the, like, uh, Quiet Storm. Quiet Storm and Chris Devine match, which the crowd shit on and lasted like two minutes. There was this, this this incident Matt will describe. And then finally there was um, the ICP match, the famous ICP uh, Outcast Killers match that the crowd shit on. So it was a very weird odds and ends DVD. It's very hard to find. Um, when I posted about it being hard to find, that's what Gabe said. Oh, I have a copy of that. It's like selling on eBay for this much. Oh, wow. And, uh, I'll note a lot of people when I put out the call to find this clip reached out to us and said they could provide it. The first two that really came to us was uh, Laney and Words Big 80s on Twitter. Thank you both so much for uh, supplying us the clip. And with that, Matt, tell us what is in that clip. All right. So the match ends and uh, the DVD of Main Event Spectacles immediately cuts away, right? Um, but... Um, what happens afterward is immediately as the match ends, Teddy Hart runs to the top of one of the platforms. And on the ground are Angel Dust and Hydro, Special K. Hydro, I believe, just took the pinfall. And Teddy Hart just like – he does a shooting star press, right? Off the platform. On the platform. Off the cage. On to, on, on, yeah, into the ring, onto Hydro and Angel Dust, who – as far as I can tell, are completely unprepared and do not see the expect this coming. And he lands on them. 
Uh, I believe he lands mostly on Angel Dust's legs, but he lands. Legs land on Angel Dust, and then torso lands on Hydro. Yeah, and like so, first like he could have like killed somebody right there, like if he landed wrong. Like nobody was ready for it, so that's the first thing. Um, Then he gets back up. And he does a dive to the outside, and who is he? Who did he dive on on the outside? Who is that? The Maximos, the SAT. Yeah, right onto the Maximos, who also did not see it coming. Then I guess the Carnage crew try to like mess with him because um, they're pissed off. But he gets back. Like they the try room. to get him to stop. Yeah, basically, he runs back in. Yell like stop, like just go to the back. Yeah, you know, multiple times. He runs back in. Like I think Jack Evans looks like he has no idea what to do. But Teddy Hart gets up on, and then he does a moonsault off the cage into the ring, landing on his feet. Then I believe he does another one. Then Jack Evans sort of joins him in the ring while like Feinstein is coming out, Gabe is coming out, and Teddy Hart just starts like barfing. He starts like puking yeah. in the ring, like very visibly, and like no, I don't think anyone quite knows what to make of it. Like, like it's not like Rob and Gabe are like screaming at him. I think they're probably concerned. Like, they're probably like worried about him until he gets to the back. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, but I'm sure there's other little nuances that I'm leaving out, so you could kind of fill in the blanks. But the only thing I'd kind of mention is first off. The crowd, once Teddy Hart really starts playing up, like really are behind Teddy Hart. They're chanting his name a lot. Like he's playing it up to get those cheers, but they're really into seeing him do a bunch of random flips. And also, for those who haven't seen the puke, it is amazing. He keeps vomiting and the crowd's like going, oh, but every time Teddy Hart vomits, he like then like pounds on his chest and salutes the crowd. Like this vomiting is barely phasing him. I've never seen a guy take vomiting so well. He's just like... Yeah, I love you guys. Whoa. <laughs> this one's for you guys. Like he just keeps going back and forth between vomiting and like enjoying the crowd's cheers. It yeah, yeah, so yeah. Vomiting feels really bad. Like so, you like you usually feel terrible while you're vomiting. So right. now, so what was this like live? Like okay, so it was exciting. We just thought it was more of the match. It's like oh well. Maybe he had a bunch of extra shit that he was going to do in the match that he didn't get in, so he's going to do whatever he wants to. It was really tough to tell live that like. You know, it wasn't part of the thing, part of the show or whatever it was, until he started puking. As you mentioned, the crowd's chanting for him, the crowd's with him. And once he starts puking, like, I think by the second and third times, and, like, there's another time where he puke, like, one time he pukes in the ring and then another time he pukes on the floor. And I think once he starts puking, the, the crowd slowly starts to, like, realize that there's something wrong. Not only with what we're seeing, but also with him. And we don't we didn't know in 2003 what we know about concussions now. And Gabe even mentions on commentary, like, after Teddy takes a move, he says, I looked into his eyes. I could see he has a concussion. Says it again. And then a third time, no, I got a better look. Teddy Hart definitely doesn't have a concussion, which obviously what, Trevor, you're going to get into with all yeah. the backstory and all the fallout of this, of course, how far after this this was all done. And again, Teddy Hart is definitely an enigma, and he's one of those guys that you hear stories about from the old territory days where they just live this wild and crazy lifestyle where you can't believe that a person, let alone a wrestler, lives like that. 
And typically they don't live very long like that. Or you hear the stories of them cleaning themselves up or getting back on the straight and narrow. And it's just a ticking time bomb until they fall right back in. And you want to say that's like a Buddy Landell type. You want to say that's like a Chris Colt type that we've kind of learned more about with all the stories that have come out from a lot of the other wrestling podcasts. But I think Teddy Hart is one of those type of people. But because he came up in an Internet age, you know, this is Teddy Hart's defining moment. But he was he was kicked out of WWE training camp twice by now. Yep. And earlier before this. Earlier in 2003, he had had a big, very well-received match with Juventud Guerrero on a TNA pay-per-view and had gotten in trouble for there for moonsaulting immediately after he lost the match. Just to – so, uh, again, this was like – 2003 was Teddy Hart's year where he was the mo- super talked about and like having these standout performances and then just burning bridges immediately afterwards over and over again. But he's he's a definitely a tragic character. And yes. I, I wish that he would go away from wrestling, not because he's but that's the thing. Probably wrestling is the only thing that he knows. And there's people out there that will book him. But I think for his own well-being, he really needs to, like, get away from wrestling to break this cycle of behavior of whatever it is. But again, I, I, he's an adult man. You know, it's so tough to. It, it's tough. It's a tough situation that Teddy Hart exists, I guess, yeah. is the best way that I can say it. It's sad. Like, it is still crazy. Two of the most recent uh, shoot interviews that have come out with Teddy Hart, there's like a a breaking kayfabe or something with or with kayfabe commentaries, and there's one called Reflections with RF Video. Both of those things barely talk about his career. They're both basically guys sitting down with Teddy Hart and being like, what the fuck happened to you? Like, where did it go wrong? Like it is just basically almost like weird interventions, except take out the part where you actually care about helping somebody. They're just basic. Like it's, he's it's such a weird career where he basically has very little to actually talk about. Like he doesn't talk about memorable matches or moments. Cause he doesn't have a ton of them. He just has this almost like urban legend, except it's real. The, the saga of Teddy Hart and some regrets, but going to what actually happened we will go to the observer now from 2003 <laughs> and this was a big landmark thing in the observer actually because for those who have never read the observer the first half of every observer is just random stories whatever dave thinks are the biggest stories of the week so big show happens he'll write a special story for the front of the issue obituary whatever second half of the of the issue is always every big promotion or area of the wrestling world has its own section. So every week there'll be like a WWE section, a TNA section or whatever. And then ring of honor would always be in the here and there section up to this point, which was um, just for everything that didn't, wasn't big enough to have a normal section. Ring of honor had never had a story in the front half of the observer until this, this got its own. St- Dave thought this was so big, not the show. The show's still stuck in the here and there section, but this incident was so big to Dave. And this is an idea of how big Teddy Hart was in 2003 to people. This was like one of the front page, not the front page, but one of the front page stories. And also another weird thing. It starts with an on the record quote from Gabe Sapolsky. Oh, so boy. I'm just going to read this article it starts with an on the record quote. He's the greatest talent in the business who will never make it anywhere. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky on Teddy Hart. And Dave writes, in what was said to be one of the most amazing matches of the year, 
The finish saw Stu Hart's grandson, Teddy Hart, barely avoid a violent, legit beating and will never work for Ring of Honor again. Dave put again in quotation marks and then wrote in parentheses, again being the wrestling term for a long time. The match was a scramble tag team match inside of a cage with the debut of platforms like a diving board higher than the top rope to create more high-flying moves. The teams were, I'll just skip over the teams. Ah. Hart and Evans were the only ones in the match with experience with the platforms, which came from the short-lived Calgary-based Matt Rats promotion, and partially because of it, they were the two stars of the match. Sapolsky had laid out a spectacular match, which was executed to perfection, according to virtually every report, and that's a, go a little heavy on this, Dave. Um, eliminating to three spots off the top of the cage, actually four, but one spot was Hart and Evans doing simultaneous cage dives, so theoretically, all the spots would mean something. The backseat boys went over, and Hart was supposed to be selling at the finish from a beatdown. Instead, he got up and, unknown to everyone, climbed up to the top of the cage and did a dive onto the Maximos, who had no idea it was coming, but were able to save Hart from potential injury by catching him. He then went up to the top of the cage a few more times, doing backflips into the ring when he was supposed to be out of there. Hart then vomited six times all over the ring. And can I just note, I love that Dave, someone got to Dave the number of times Teddy Hart vomited. So that's a great detail that Gabe or someone was like, look, we counted the pukes. It was six. Um, Logan DeVito were furious about his not selling a beat down and went back with the idea of legitimately attacking him. Promoter Rob Feinstein told them not to, and it would be handled in the back. Sapolsky went off on Hart, age 23, until he was calmed down by, of all people, the voice of tempered reason, Jim Cornette. (laughs) Cornette very calmly took Hart aside and explained to him what all the problems were and why, even though the crowd gave both Hart and Evans a post-match standing ovation, it was the wrong thing to not sell the beatdown and upstage the guys who went over. Hart seemed to listen to Cornette's speech, but then got up and reportedly said, quote, this is just like the WWF where everyone is jealous of what I can do, unquote. Five years ago, Hart was the star of a Dory Funk Jr. WWF training camp, but got into trouble at the hotel that the company uses in Stanford, Connecticut, and was sent home. A similar thing happened a second time, and the feeling at the time was that he simply wasn't mature enough to handle being on the road, even though nobody denied his talent. Since then, WWF officials have grown weary weary of him in his attempts to get back in while showing no signs of growing up to where he wasn't even allowed backstage the last time the WWF came to Calgary. After the speech from Cornette, Teddy even went to Sapolsky and said, quote, I can't believe you wouldn't at least pat me on the back for what I did in the match. There were wrestlers who wanted to punch him, although cooler heads prevailed. He was kicked out of the locker room and his bags were thrown out with him. Feinstein spent most of the rest of the night around him to make sure nobody would attack him. Later in the night, when he realized he was done with the promotion, and this is where we get into near-scarred baby territory with crazy quotes, (laughs) Hart told Feinstein and Sapolsky that he had suffered a concussion and that when he suffers a concussion, he starts doing backflips. They didn't buy it because when he asked them to feel a lump on his head, there was no lump. In addition, his doing backflips after a big move was what put him in the doghouse in TNA on the August 27th TNA show where he took a hoovy driver off the middle rope and was pinned. And instead of selling it as a spectacular finish, he nipped up, climbed to the top rope, and did a backflip. At the time, that promotion decided they would never use him again. But then the talks afterwards were different because Hart was such a favorite from being in one of the company's best matches in its history. However, he has still not been brought back. 
Hart reportedly made comments in Ring of Honor backstage that this was just like TNA, where they were jealous of him because he could do things in the ring that AJ Styles couldn't do. The guys basically kicked him out, said Sapolsky. If I even wanted to bring him back, I'd lose the respect of the locker room. Sapolsky know that this doesn't apply at all to Jack Evans, who got over great, and they would like to continue to use, with the only co- problem being the cost of a flight from Seattle to their shows in the Northeast. Hart then sent a letter to all major websites apologizing. He claimed he stayed in New Jersey until November 4th because he was awaiting medical clearance to fly due to his concussion. He said he got a concussion when he took a headfirst bump into the guardrail and remembers nothing from that point. Sapolsky didn't buy it, saying that the bump occurred early in the match, and Hart remembered every spot for the next several minutes. He also said that they've had a lot of experience with wrestlers with concussions with the kind of glassy-eyed look, and he said Hart neither had a bump on his head or that look that night. So before we get into the other aftermath, that was the first (laughs) big story. I mean, uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I mean, just... I, um... I think it's interesting, you know, like what was focused on, because a lot of focus is on like him upstaging people, him being obnoxious, but like there's not a lot of talk about how truly dangerous what he did was. And like, they don't even mention the hydro thing. They only mention the Maximo's dive. Right. To me, the hydro thing is the more dangerous thing. Right. Like jumping on people that from a high from a high height don't know you're jumping on them. Like again, like I don't want to like overstate this, but like you could kill somebody doing that. Like you land on their head. Like you land on their neck. Like it's very dangerous. You kill yourself doing that when you're jumping yes. without control. But yeah, like. like- it's it's like this is really dangerous, and I think that's way worse than just like the etiquette of the business. Even if you say, okay, what if the guys had moved out of the way and Teddy had just hurt himself and it was his it's his choice? That would have been bad for the show if a guy died in the middle of it. Or it was you, seri- like he lands it, like breaks his like doesn't die, but breaks his neck, breaks his leg, breaks his arm. Like I I'd prefer him puking six more times than that, you know. And it, it's amazing. Like, I just love the moment where he tell apparently told Rob and Gabe to feel for a lump on his head when, they, according to them, he had no lump on his head. Like, that's some real liar's poker move there. Like, you don't believe me? Well, you you feel the lump on my head. It's like, uh, yeah. I'm not feeling anything. But well, it's, I guess it's sort of like gaslighting where you're like, um, oh, I don't feel it, so I must be wrong. And it's just – Again, this was edited off the release. It only came out on this ROH Uncensored DVD, but it just became a legendary thing people talked about. Gabe ended up – I mean, Teddy ended up doing a, uh interview with Get In The Ring Radio where he basically – again, his, his big thing was everyone's jealous of me, all this bullshit. CM Punk ret- like had a comeback on his live journal where he just called down Teddy something fierce and all of a sudden Teddy was a liar. But there's a bit more in the Observer about the fallout um, – Teddy has been calling and apologizing daily to Ring of Honor. Never, as in never coming back, looked to me a few months down the line, but there are differences of opinion there. Booker of Gabe Sapolsky is pretty adamant about not wanting him back, thinking it would undermine the locker room. Rob Feinstein thinks he's an awesome talent and expects things to blow over, since in wrestling, they usually do. Hart did himself no favors with an interview in on Get In The Ring Radio, saying he does backflips before and after every match he does as a tribute to Owen Hart. Uh, Dave writes, somehow I think Owen would be more impressed with him not doing a backflip after taking a Hoovy driver off the middle rope. 
Teddy says he performs for the fans and noted his post-show backflips got him a standing ovation from the live crowd. He also claimed the only people mad at him were the Carnage crew and he wasn't kicked out of the locker room. I'll note that Teddy himself has disputed this in late. He's contradicted himself on this in later shoot interviews. What? He Because now he's admitted that everyone was pissed at him and that someone would Joe want to fight him and Alice in Danger was yelling at him and all this other stuff. If the only thing he did was backflips onto no one, I think that would be like not still not good, dangerous, but not nearly as big of a deal as jumping onto people. Um, Teddy, yeah, exactly. And Teddy continues. Teddy claimed he flew himself out to Ring of Honor because Steve Carino and other wrestlers in Ring of Honor refused to work if he was getting paid. I'll note Carino and others have disputed that. They've said that that is not, we've never said that. Um, let me just see here. Blah blah blah. He claimed that people like Carino and AJ Styles were jealous of him and said that Carino called him a goof. And I'll note that years and years later, um, Teddy is still very angry that Steve Carino called him a goof. At one point in a shoot, Teddy said that where he comes from, calling someone a goof is a serious thing. I have no idea where that is. Um, he, uh, like he, he, Nowadays, he has nice things to say about Gabe. He has nice things to say about AJ, even Punk. He's still mad at Steve Carino. I don't know why <laughs> this lasted. He, he, he is hates Steve Carino. Um he said that AJ Styles gave him a list of moves not to do. He says that wasn't fair because Styles didn't invent any of those moves. He said that the Ring of Honor promoter should step in because he puts asses in the seats. He again talked about guys being jealous of him and then said his only plan now is to wrestle for WWE. Dave ends this point of the article by saying good luck. Um, to, anyway, CM Punk refuted a lot of the things and uh, – Dave wrote in another observer, the feeling is that when Hart said he always does the backflips after a match as a tribute to Owen Hart, it was an admission he made up last week's story about having a concussion and not remembering anything. The story about Creo and others refusing to work for the shows if Hart was paid to do them was pure fantasy. Many can't believe his lack of tact in bearing AJ Styles, who has tremendous respect among everyone on the indie scene and is a major player in TNA, so this won't help his chances of being brought back there. Because this is wrestling, there are many who think this is a work for publicity, but the last thing an indie promotion these days needs is to work its own talent. What is interesting is that people who know Hart the best are the ones who know for sure that it isn't a work. There have been suggestions made to Ring of Honor to bring him back and to turn it into an angle, but even if it would have been considered, Hart has pretty much at this point made that impossible. Um, the other thing that note was... Teddy, at this point, this is a crazy point. He hired David Penzer, ring announcer David Penzer, to be his agent. And David Penzer apparently started calling companies like Ring of Honor Daily, saying that Teddy was going to be the next Brian Pillman and that they should turn this into an angle. So, just an absolute insane, insane thing. It's weird that the clearly the most noteworthy thing on the show was not put on their DVD release of the show, and then they ended up releasing it anyway. That, that, that is and funny. that was the selling point of the ROH Uncentered DVD, was you're going to get to see the De- Teddy Hart incident. I mean, you sure um, did. You sure did see it. And it is just so crazy. Like, So I went, and having researched all this, I went and watched a couple of these new shoot interviews, including, and Teddy Hart is just insane. He says at one point, like, I told Matt about this. When he's talking about, like, the positive reasons WWE should want to sign him, one of the things he says seriously, like, not as a joke, is that he doesn't have any cavities. 
I don't know what that even means. Um, he says he should have been the next Rock, but better. In fact, he's not very impressed with the Rock as an in-ring wrestler because he doesn't do anything off the top rope. He says that if he could ever meet anyone living or dead again, he'd meet Vince McMahon again just to show him his five-minute highlight video on YouTube. Um, but the <laughs> Sorry, I, sh- I, I, I really, I really shouldn't laugh, but the, his five-minute highlight video, like on YouTube, like not even like a curated thing, just like this video of myself that I saw on YouTube. I would meet Vince McMahon to show him this. It would last five minutes. Like well, I, I don't mean to laugh, but come on, that's funny. I mean, Teddy's big thing is that he is like he's the best moves guy ever. Like he never talks about great matches. He just says that like he does moves no one can do. And I think you feeling guilty about laughing. Like to me, that's the problem with Teddy Hart is he's like watching, I don't know, celebrity rehab or something where you can't stop watching it, but you feel like a piece of crap for being entertained by it. And that's yeah. kind of what I feel with Teddy. But anyway, getting to the Teddy thing in these shoots. He he constantly contra- contradicts himself. Sometimes he says he seems like apologetic. Sometimes he says he did nothing wrong. Sometimes he says everyone was jealous of him. Sometimes he kind of puts over AJ Styles and, and them. Um, but the big thing that came out in these new shoot interviews is he claims that Rob Feinstein told him to do a shoot angle without telling Gabe. That basically he wanted him to work a shoot angle with Gabe. And not tell Gabe. And he thinks that's because he knew Rob was getting mad at Gabe at this point. But it just sounds crazy. He gives no further details. He doesn't substantiate it at all in any way. But that's his new thing that's come out in recent years is, oh, well, Rob told me to do it. And it, uh, in one of these shoot interviews, Rob's in the background because it's an RF video shoot interview. And Rob's kind of backing up on some points. Like, yep, the rest of us were just jealous of you and stuff. And it, it's worth noting in the in the Observer – you know, like going to what I read, according to the according to the Observer, Rob was always like wanting to bring Teddy back. It was it was not Gabe. It was, and Rob apparently like Teddy brags like I'm really close with Rob, and you know I was the first guy to work with Rob after that scandal. Like that's a point of pride to Teddy. Mm. Um, fucking insane. And then and so, but 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 he does come back. He yeah, comes back four months later, and this was at this building. Yeah, he comes back for at our best in a random, like crazy multi-man high-flying match, and then I think not coincidentally, once Gate, once um, Rob is gone, there are no more bookings for Teddy Hart. So I think that tells you right there who was supporting Teddy and who wasn't. Yeah. Um, finally, we have one more story that's kind of not related, but kind of related, and that is for those who don't know, on uh, February twenty-fifth, I believe, in TNA. Teddy Hart and CM Punk got into a fight. Yes, I'm glad you're bringing this up. And um, so I'll go back to the observer one more time and then we'll be all done this. The return of Teddy Hart on February 25th brought its share, or it might have been 26th, it brought share of news and speculation as he got into a fight before the show and then had an injury during the show, both of which, given his reputation, have been questioned. During the afternoon, Punk was eating at the White Trash Cafe, which is near the fairgrounds in Nashville, and allows the wrestlers to eat for free. Hart came in, and according to one eyewitness, asked Punk if he had a problem with him, since Hart and Punk have ripped on each other on the internet since the November 1st explosion at Ring of Honor. In fact, two weeks earlier, when the rumors got out that TNA was going to bring Teddy Hart back, Punk told people that he was going to slap him when he walked through the doors of the asylum. Because the wrestlers often talk like that, and there was have been, and there has been old heat when a lot of wrestlers were brought in, but nothing has happened. Nobody really paid that much attention to it. 
Los Costa Punk says he hates Hart with a passion and probably does even more now. Hart was wearing his headphones, which many think he doesn't even have turned on, and was smirking before Punk bumped him. And Punk made a comment and Hart couldn't either couldn't hear it or because of his headphones, or others believe, pretended not to hear it. When Punk repeated it, they ended up outside the cafe. The two were talking, with neither shouting at the other. I witnessed... Eyewitnesses did see Hart take off his headphones, and then Punk slapped him very hard. Punk probably figured that would be it, but didn't realize Hart has trained in boxing and responded with an overhand right that decked Punk. Hart got in two more shots on the ground as Punk had a black eye and a goose egg before Sabu jumped in. Everybody stopped because Sabu, as nutty as he can be, is a veteran and is respected, particularly by Hart. There were others watching who did nothing until Sabu jumped in, and then the other wrestlers helped Sabu out. As they were being separated, both started yelling at each other with the you-want-some-more type diatribe. Punk, who just lost a little face because he started it and got the worst of it, was saying later that he was going to get heart before the day was over until people in the company made it clear to him that if he tried, he'd be gone. Since Hart came in with the skepticism, the only reason he wasn't fired is because there were many white witnesses who all, including those who hate Hart, said that Punk started it and the only thing Hart could possibly be faulted for was smirking, making the trouble worse, and retaliating after the slap instead of walking away. It was understood that he would have, had he done that, people would have called him a pussy, so he was in a no-win situation. Uh, both were brought in to talk with Don Harris, who told both of them they were brought in to be professionals. And if there's another incident with either of them, they'll be fired. Um, so yeah, that is the final saga. I guess that kind of predicted CM Punk's MMA career. Like <laughs> the fact that he, uh, I think he fared better in the Teddy Hart fight than his UFC fights. It's funny. So much of the talk around this time was also that they, that this was a work. I think with with the history of time, um, we now know it wasn't a work. Any of this, it, it's never been played off. Uh, well, and likely voices of reason, Sabu and Don Harris. And Jim Cornette in the other situation. Oh, so, yeah. Like, how, how fucked up must you be as Teddy Hart when, like, some of the craziest, notoriously, possibly racist people in wrestling are like, okay, we have to do something about this this real lunatic. We're just, like, kind of kitschy wrestling lunatics, but Teddy might be a legitimate madman. But you all have to admit that Bret Hart versus Vince McMahon match would have been so much better if they just decided that the big high spot of the match was that Teddy Hart would show up and just run wild. <laughs> Back to Teddy Hart did that moonsault onto Vince unexpectedly, yeah. and then while both were down, showed him the five-minute highlight video, and then threw up on both of them. Oh my god! <laughs> the um, I am amazed, Teddy Hart. I mean, he Teddy Hart basically got kind of unofficially blackballed from a lot of places, but I'm amazed he still gets bookings to this day. Because to me, the difference between like a Teddy Hart and most other difficult to work with guys is a lot of guys like Low Key, for example will just refuse to do a job. Teddy Hart, like, went off script after he left the curtain. Like, to me, if you can't trust a guy to do what he says he's going to do, like, how could you ever book that guy? I, I don't get, like, not just the safety and also, I mean, like like Matt said before, Matt made a great point. People are focusing way more on him going into business for himself than the safety aspect. But there is also the fact that, like, the point of the match was not to get Teddy Hart over it was to have the backseat boys go over and everyone to get over a little bit doing the spots. And Teddy Hart took completely took the attention on himself. And he, to this day does not seem to get why that's a bad thing. Like why he completely overshadowed these guys who were one. Like he's lucky that like Trent acid raised his hand after and wasn't pissed at him going, 
what the fuck? Like, you completely stole my thunder here. But again, there there are companies that book Teddy Hart still to this day, and that I think they always will. And you know, it's how much he brings in, and as he mentions himself, he puts butts in seats, mm-hmm. and the promoter has to decide like is this risk reward worth it? And there are promotions that do, you know, game changer wrestling being one of them. Um, you know, some of the other New York independents do as well, but I know very famously earlier this year, uh, Mikey Blanton of uh, black label pro put up a whole thing about how he had booked Teddy to come in for a show. And Teddy refused to work. Teddy said he couldn't do it because he didn't have his gear, but he actually was wearing his gear at the time. And it's a whole big long thing. If you just search out Mikey Blanton, Black Label Pro, Teddy Hart, you'll find the whole thing. He, like he does a very detailed account, and I'm sure that didn't help matters in Teddy getting booked other places. But you know, it's just these stories and this legacy will continue as long as Teddy Hart gets booked. I know Teddy Hart was originally announced to be in Shakar earlier this year, Jesus. And, and very quiet. Well, you know, over King of Trios weekend. You know, they do the Raid of Oladoris where they bring in, like, flippy dudes and people who don't win in the first round move on to it. But Teddy was the first name announced, and his name was up there for a while. And then just very quietly, no fanfare, no anything else, his name was just removed. Somebody else was announced, and everyone just moved on with it. And I think it is. People want to give Teddy a chance because, you know, he is – what he does is spectacular, and he is a compelling character. And – I think people do want to give him that chance and that opportunity, but for every company that does, there's three that he burns. He just doesn't, he just doesn't get it. When you, when I watch these shooting interviews, he just doesn't understand why people would not like that. He just thinks everyone's jealous of him. Like the thing that I think he ignores, he says this match, everyone backstage was jealous of, and that's why they got mad. Jack Evans did things just as crazy, if not crazier, and he walked into a full-time job with the company. Like, how does he explain that? He never does, and no one ever asks them that. Like, if they were jealous of you, how come your friend, Jack Evans, who is just as crazy as you, like, he got regular work for years in Ring of Honor after this? Like, what's the difference, Teddy? And he and he doesn't ever have an answer for that. So I promise I will not read that much in one's time in a, on an episode for a long, long time, hopefully ever. We're going um, back to the show. Well, there is uh, at our best that's coming up. Not I'm the not too distant to future. That in a different way, because if I read everything there, it'll be an episode of uh, uh, between the sheets, which is a fine podcast, but not this podcast. I am yeah. not going to read the Observer for seven hours until my voice lows. Um, non-title. Oh, by the way, you can hear Joe Sposto on episodes of uh, through. Yeah, the there you go. Good episodes. They- they 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 record them in different days. They like record it all over like two or three days. They don't record it all in one sitting. I don't think anyone yeah, could do that. They're fucking nuts. They're insane. Um, going back to something a little less insane. The semi-main event, non-title, four-corner survival match. CM Punk and 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 Steve Carino defeat Christopher Daniels and Samoa oh. Joe in 23 minutes. When both men pinned Daniels after they hit a double Northern Lights suplex. Um. Matt, Matt, before we give it to you, since I've been talking too much, uh, Punk, Mike Johnson from PW Insider says, CM Punk worked on a hurt knee, which actually delayed the start of the bout as it popped out backstage and he had to get it back in place in order to work. Uh, so try and t- give some thoughts of this match without being squeamish about a guy's knee popping out. Yeah, well, Punk doesn't do much in this match, so clearly that's probably why, right? And um, 
Yeah, I think he was having knee troubles a lot because didn't he also have a knee trouble during the Carino match? Like, right, which is just one week earlier, so I'm sure yeah, it was so. related. Um, but uh, the highlight for Punk in the match was honestly during his entrance when uh, <laughs> a fan got in his face and oh, yelled boy. die at him multiple times while Punk just stood there and took it while multiple people were cracking up in the crowd. I'm sure you included. Um, world, that's a world famous uh, Ring of Honor and independent wrestling thing named, and this is not the name I gave him, but this is the name he was known by, Nick Knowledge. Okay. N- known CM Punk and everything else hater. And uh, possibly to this day, whenever my friend Doug, hi Doug, goes to shows and he sees Nick Knowledge, he goes, it takes everything in my power not to ask for a refund and leave because I just feel uncomfortable being in the same building as him. Because much like Teddy Hart mentioned before, he feels that this gentleman is is unstable. And I was surprised to see them leave such an interaction with a fan like this be left into a show like this. They very easily could have cut that out. Yeah, I mean, they clearly thought it was a highlight themselves. Um, and Nick Knowledge, for those who don't might remember, I posted a clip and t- we talked about, a, I think, a two or three episodes ago where he was the guy, I think, during the uh, – <laughs> I think it was – I forget what match it was, but he's um, banging on the barricade trying to get everyone to start, like, chanting and stuff, and no one does, but he gets super into it. And then when he finally sits down, he, like, looks around and gets sheepishly embarrassed for a second. Like, he's that same <laughs> that That same guy, yes. Yeah. So, so die, die, die. That is what he said. <laughs> and um, as far as the match, um, I don't know. It was weird. It's another one of those weird face heel things. Because, like, Daniels was a total baby face in this match, I think. Like, he, he comes out saying, who built this company? Right. The company he's been trying to destroy for the last year and a half. He's, in, he like, he's like, come on, who's with me? I built this company. Who's with me? I'm like, you've been trying to destroy this company. Right. And before. Before the match, Carino does his usual long speech with Bobby Cruz, but this one is naming all the former uh, NWA Southern heavyweight champions. And I guess the usual reaction, I think they go like eight minutes long and the crowd chants shut the fuck up, but cheers it. But I just wanted to quickly slip in uh, another Daniels babyface thing. The crowd at one point, because they're getting a- agitated, chants show your tits at Simply Luscious. And then Daniel starts flexing his tits his pecs to each side of the crowd and it gets like huge laughs. Yeah. He was a total baby face here. And yeah, that, that, that opening list was probably, probably actually got the least like baby face esque reaction of any of Carino's lists so far. Cause usually the crowd get a, get a kick out of it, but this time they treated it as a total heel move and they were just like, shut the fuck up. Let's move on. The one thing that was funny was Lex Luger got such huge oh, booze that, that Daniels looked he like literally looks at the microphone. I mean, I mean the camera and he goes, wow. <laughs> and I thought the other cute thing was, uh, when they linked, they they start the thing going just like former Ring of Honor champions, like low key, and that gets a lot of boo. So obviously this crowd knew the score. And then before Bobby Cruz reads off Xavier's name, Cruz gets confused, and Guillotine Legrand has to tell him who Xavier is. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, I- Xavier!" Like just like just burying Xavier. And meanwhile, Xavier is on this card. Right, and Carino <laughs> mouths never heard of him. Yeah. It's and funny because like, that that would have made sense, like in the next year when Xavier was gone and like, you know, he was like kind of the forgotten champion, but like he's a currently semi push wrestler in the promotion. He's that- number three in the top five. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Uh, also, you know, what's funny. If, if anyone's just watching this, look for when, um, 
low key when when Bobby Cruz says low key's name and the crowd boos while he says low key's name. Steve Carell's response is to look up to heaven and like do a salute like low key is dead. <laughs> he, like points to heaven like this one's for you. <laughs> like he he does like the low key taunt as well, and he mentions that he's a fellow zero one stablemate of Steve Carino. Like so just really, really like, leading into the low key stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's good stuff. The Carino entrances, <laughs> I like them a lot. Um, but I don't think the match itself was as good. Uh, I think, um, you know, they were, they were working hard. And like Joe said, they kind of just all did whatever they wanted and punk sort of stayed out of it when he could, um, you know, he had to come in for certain spots, but he didn't there wasn't a lot of punk in this match. Um, like I said, Daniels and Joe, like it's Daniels and Joe were the faces, punk and Karina were the heels. So a lot of the time it was like a tag team match. I thought the in match highlight was, they do a little bit of a dive train. Even Punk does a tope to the floor despite his knee. Um, and then Joe does a big flip dive onto all of them. And then Joe sets the guys up for a uh, for ole ole kicks. He does an ole ole kick to Daniels. Then he's about to do one to Carino, but Punk jumps at him, uh, goes for like a runner, running runner off the apron, but Joe catches him, swings him into the guardrail, then hits the ole ole kick on Carino. I thought that was like the hottest part of the match in terms of like action. Joe looked good there. Um, and no one looked bad really, but it was just, um, I don't know. It's a lot of kind of disjointedness. Um, the end of the match, you know, the punk comes in, he's saving Carino, uh, after, after a power bomb and STF, he goes for a shining wizard. Joe blocks and turns that into an STF that Carino breaks up. So Daniels goes for the BME, but Legrand moves Carino. And so Daniels actually hits the best moons I'll ever on Legrand and Gabe, oh God, great Gabe stuff here. Legrand did not interfere. I mean, he just moved Carino out of the way. So, I mean, I guess that's interference. But, you know, you really have to really attack someone in order to get DQ'd. It's just like one of those games, like just thinking on his feet, to, that he just, it would have been much better if he just left it alone and didn't mention anything about the rules at all right there. I but, think one of the most lovable things Gabe does is those moments like that where, like, he so honest, he corrects himself. Like, he's like, that's not interference. And then, like you said, a second later, he's like, well, I guess that's interference. Like, Gabe cannot even lie lie right because he just deep down he's like oh okay it's interference but it's not that bad i I love that he can't help himself it was i don't know like i just find that stuff so much funnier than probably anyone besides you or me find it but um you know and you a match like of this caliber with this level stars it's never gonna go over too well when you end it on a weird double pin thing and then you have the referees conferring and they're like oh there are two winners like yeah, that was obvious. You didn't have to have that whole meeting to figure that one out. Um, and what does that even mean? So it was... Right, because this was supposed to be like for a future title shot, which yeah. negates the top five, which negates the number one contendership trophy. And I don't think Carino ever gets a shot at Joe for, for the well, title for well, that matter. Well, Punk doesn't get his shot for like seven months. And right. then, or six months, uh, yeah, seven, and then because Car- he gets embroiled in like all the pure title nonsense, right? And then Carino was supposed to get his shot, but it's not until the following October, eleven months later, and then of course that doesn't happen, and it turns into Joe Punk too. But it's like, yeah, what what did any of this mean? Um, and the crowd is like clearly shits on it, which I think sets the next match up not too great for in terms of the crowd. Um, and of course, they had just followed a crazy spot fest to begin with. Um, none of this match was bad. I mean, it was kind of good in some ways. Like the guys are good wrestlers, but it just it just didn't fit together the way that you would have wanted for these guys. 
Joe, what, do you agree or disagree? Uh, yeah, it's it, the, like you know, we know from shoot interviews done at this time, after this time, whatever, that these were four guys that liked each other. You know, outside of the wrestling ring, they were friends. They palled around. Um, so this was like essentially just like four guys goofing around, having a good time, doing some of the cool stuff that they could do. And at the end of the day, it meant nothing. And it should have meant a lot more. And I think the main problem with it was was that double finish. And I don't know what the logic behind it was. I don't know what it should have or would have or could have built, built up. But even at the time, it just felt flat. Even if this was the best match ever that these four guys could have ever had in their entire life, the finish just completely ruined it. And, and I think this is, a, this is a match where, again, you needed, this show had the two big selling points. It had the scramble cage and it had Danielson, AJ. I feel like this match would be more acceptable if you had that homicide key match just to put over the top. Because then you'd be like, well, we still got so much big stuff. If one big match kind of has a weird finish, it isn't that great. That's okay. But but in the semi-main event spot with these right. four guys, you're kind of expecting better or something more noteworthy. And it, I, anyone who listens to the show knows I'm not a huge fan of four ways. I felt this was very middle of the road. Like no one did anything wrong. Although I heard Joe criticize uh, Steve Carino for being hard to like – he sandbags people on suplexes sometimes. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> does Steve Carino not jump much for some of these suplexes. You you earn your money when you suplex Steve Carino, <laughs> it looks like. Um, but I, like, like Joe said, they're friends, so I'm sure it's just good-natured ribbing. But I really noticed it in this match for some reason. Um I thought it was just an average match where, again, there wasn't a ton of story to it other than the idea of – Punk really has it out for um, Daniels, and he and Karina are kind of, they're, I guess they're frenemies before that word became a thing. And Joe, I thought, was the most impressive guy. The things that uh, Matt mentioned, I think the, were, those were the highlights, standout spots. Joe, he's not in his working prime. I think he has even better matches in 2004 to 2006-ish, but I think his athletic prime he just is so fast for a guy his size here. And the fact he does like that twisting dive, like this is just Joe at his athletic peak, I think. And he just moves so easy. Like I almost feel bad watching him now. I mean, watching him young at this age now, because it just reminds me that, oh, he is like more hurt now because you, you realize he doesn't move like close to this way anymore. Right. Joe was amazing at this point, as you mentioned, just his physical peak. And I was actually going to say the same thing, like 2004 to 2005, even into 2006, he was having like the best matches in the world on a regular basis. And here is this guy who is just like raw potential and raw ability. And it took him like a year to harness everything. But even if he just stayed at this level, you know, this level of athleticism, I think he still could have had those same matches, but he learned like when to do the stuff as opposed to just do all the crazy shit I can do. But Joe was awesome during this period. And like there was like there was just no stopping him. Like they were smart to put the title on him as quick as they did. You know, we talked before about the BJ Whitmer stuff where the crowd will kind of dictate when it's time to put a guy over. And from Joe's debut to him winning the title was what, five months? Yeah, yep. It's also it's crazy. Like I know about the you know the bodies and all this stuff. It's crazy that it took so long for WWE to want Samoa Joe. Like the fact that they didn't look at him right there with his charisma and his timing and his athleticism and didn't say like this guy's money like even right then and there is crazy to me. 
it's one of the biggest missed opportunities in the last 15 years, I think, like to not take Joe in his physical prime and just push him as a monster. He, I mean, he's had a fairly good run considering the, the, the miles on his body, considering that he's had a pretty good run in WWE, but man, when he was in this kind of like physical shape and could have just done anything and wouldn't have probably been as, you know, frequently hurt, like, he was also Man. he was also like not even a bad promo at this point. No, he 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 walked into being like one of the top five promos in Ring of Honor. Yeah, he, right he was away. a believable promo. Like those early promos came off like a little scriptedy, but during the stuff where he was the hired gun for the prophecy, but he was hanging out with Carino and the group, he came off as like a dude that you would want to hang around with, but was also a badass killer. Yep, and yep. that wasn't the character that he was written. That's just who he was. And it conveyed as though that was the real thing. And you mentioned about like him not being in his physical prime and, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Of course, Bruce Pitchard, say what you will on his podcast said that the reason that Joe wasn't hired by WWF, because he was doing dark matches around this time. He was doing like jacked and metal tapings and velocity and shit but the reason they never hired him was because he was from the non anoa'i samoan family Ugh. that's what bruce pritchard says yeah. whatever it's true or not is another story if that's true that's such a dumb right that's a <laughs> terrible <laughs> terrible reason it's a dumb reason but i just yeah it, it's I, I got to cheer myself up. And the only way I could cheer myself up is with an, another amazing Gabe commentary moment, which is <laughs> this is something only I'm going to like probably because it's such a little subtle thing. But there's a moment in this match where um, Dan, you really have to watch it to get it. But uh, CM Punk's taking it to Chris Daniels and Gabe is talking about how intense it is between them. And Gabe is kind of getting that voice where like you can tell he's getting into this rhythm where he's calling everything like Punk takes it with this and, and Punk hits him with that. And so – Punk suplexes Daniels and Gabe excitedly goes a big suplex from Punk. And you can tell he really wants to call whatever the next move is super big. And so the camera cuts away for a second and then cuts back and Gabe's in the middle, like and Punk's take it to him and he big suplex. And then, and the next move is a chin lock. And then Gabe has to go and slaps on a chin lock. Like he says in that case, like, like, whatever move Punk was going to do, he was going to say in that cadence and Punk put on a chin lock. So he had to do it. So he's like, <laughs> I, 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 I need to go back and watch that. It, it, it's just uh, it, it, it's a little more subtle than that but it's just it's so great it's just one of those things where i i watch and i go how can anyone completely hate gabe's commentary with moments like this it's so great and next we have Matt Stryker and Xavier backstage, and it's hilarious because they have to hold a stare down as Gary Michael Capetta talks just off camera, but it sounds like he's doing it from a bathroom, and he announces, these two men have made the finals of the Field of Honor tournament. Um, it in is, their block, in their block. Yeah, in, in their block, yeah. Right. Uh, thank you for the uh, – Stryker says nothing's going to stop him. Xavier says he'll stop him, and that well, he used to be champion around here. Xavier says when all is said, to done, said and done, he's going to say, oh, well, sucks to be you, which is – wow, what a great line. Um, that's the second time he used it on the show. Yeah, Maybe that's, trying that's, to get that over as a catchphrase. I think that clearly is what it is, yeah. And then Xavier goes to leave when John Walters, the greatest pro man alive, stops him. Not Walter John. Not John Waters, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Imagine, just imagine this segment between Matt Stryker and Xavier, and just John Waters walks in. And it's like I need to talk to Xavier. 
<laughs> I love your impression. I wasn't even trying to do an impression there, but okay. Oh, my God. That's just my voice. So <laughs> Walter says that the issue between him and Xavier have become personal and then says even the sun shines on a dog's ass now and then, and it's shined on Xavier's three times. So I'll note, here's the history of John Walter's Ring of Honor promos. First, he had the one where he said, Xavier, piss on me, piss on you. Then the next show, he said he was going to wipe Xavier's ass all over the place. And now he's talking about light shining on dog asses. So John Walter's the greatest promo man of 2003. Uh, Walters guarantees he will beat Xavier the next time they wrestle. I wrote on my notes, what is Walters' gimmick at this point? That he loses some matches and then guarantees that he'll win win others and always wins those? This is a why don't they make the whole plane out of what they make the black box out of situation. (laughs) If he always wins when he guarantees it, but doesn't when he doesn't, why doesn't he guarantee that he'll win every match? I just don't get this. I don't. I think what, yeah, I think whatever Gabe had in his mind for John Walters was not fully formed yet and would finally become fully formed around the time of a Davy Richards-type character. That makes sense, yeah. He's done this this like three times now, where John Walters, the last Boston show, he lost, and he says, next time we come to Boston, I guarantee I'll win, and he does. Then he does the one where he loses to Christopher Daniels and guarantees he'll win his next match, and he does later that night. And now here he loses to Xavier and guarantees he'll win the next time he faces Xavier, which he will. So basically, John Walter's thing is he's like a 500 wrestler, but he calls his shots. Like, oh, these are the ones I'm going to win. You know it when I say it. Like, it'd be one thing if he guarantees and just always wins, or, or, or guarantees he'll win one big match. But, like, he loses half his matches and then guarantees the other half. It's just... Right. He, well, he only feels the need to guarantee because he loses so many other matches. <laughs> That's really true. It's insane. Um, elsewhere backstage, Rob Feinstein's in a Calvin Klein t-shirt telling us he's sorry to interrupt the action, but we're, he's got to promote Ring of Honor's first ever double shot weekend. Raven has requested one more match with CM Punk, and it will be a lottery from hell match. Rob doesn't even know what that means. Spoiler, it's just a cage match. Um, the next time it will be, and also it will be, the next show will after that will be Steve Crino versus Homicide in a no-rope barbed wire match. So that leaves us with the main event, Ring of Honor world title, number one contendership trophy match. AJ Styles defeats Brian Danielson via pinfall. 24 minutes, 15 seconds after he hits the Styles Clash. Joe, before I hold it over to you, this is the first ever time Ring of Honor did something I really don't like. I'm curious to see what you guys think oh. of it. Which is, Gabe, after the first minute or two of the match, says, you know what, let's go in the crowd and watch this match. We're going to let the action speak for itself. And then after that, there is no commentary for the rest of the match. Um... I really don't like this. I'm, I'm just going to say that. He, I, I, I know some people really like this. Gabe's done this for, he did this for Joe Kabashi. I think he did it for one of the famous Dragon Gate six-man tags for big matches. And I feel this is bad because it, it's like admitting that your commentary isn't good. And I don't think commentary takes away from something classic. What people consider the greatest matches of all time, whether you consider it Flair Steamboat or, I don't know, Kawada Masawa or anything recent, any of the New Japan stuff, 
there's commentary. No one ever goes, you know, that match was great, but it would be better if it was completely silent on commentary during it. Like the fact that Gabe feels the need to do this, it's like such a lack of confidence. And I also feel like it kind of shits on other matches because that's like if you have a really big match, but then you do do commentary for it, you're kind of saying, well, this is a good match, but it's not worthy of us leaving and not talking about it. Like it's I, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of it. But I think it's worth pointing out, this is the first time they ever gave that to any kind of match, was this match. I, I think in this instance it worked. One, only because it does get set up that, hey, like, hey, we're going to go watch this in the crowd. Let's go try to find a spot in the bleachers and everything else like that. You know, kind of painting the illusion that they were there live. Of course, we know it's all done in post. Another thing I can even think of is maybe they did do commentary for it and Gabe maybe wasn't happy with it. Maybe it just didn't work. So he was just like, screw it. Let's just not do commentary for it. Make this match seem a little bit more special. And I get what you're saying. It's the sort of thing where, you know, the Vince Russo booking where all this stuff on the show is fake, but this part is real. We're like, this is the match that doesn't get commentary. So this is a better and thus more special match than any other match in Ring of Honor history. But I think in more recent memory, there are certain matches that I think letting the action speak for itself works and i think it really worked in this this uh instance because i really like this match and i can't think of what plug for a future show or you know what gabe or doug who were not the skilled commentators to i think really to add the gravitas to this match that it would need if it was a dave prazak who could turn it on when he needs to if it was a lenny leonard or someone like that who they would have further down the line and they said this i'd be like no no no. i'd rather you guys call this because you guys are skilled professionals where gabe and doug were just like the guys at the office while they were editing shit mm, I, I always just feel like Unless commentary is like Donnie B level awful, <laughs> I, it doesn't hurt my enjoyment. Because even like WWE modern commentary, which I don't think is very good, I just tune it out. Like it has to be really bad for me to not to feel like it's actually hurting my enjoyment of a match. Uh, one thing I remember at this time, like going to the Ring of Honor message boards, is people would always fight. Like, is, do, is the commentary good? Is the commentary bad? Who should do it? And people would always complain that like PWG in the early days had a very jokey commentary with Excalibur and Disco Machine where often they would barely commentate the matches. And because it was so divisive and because they were a bit more on the ball with technology, they always had it even on those early DVDs that there was two commentary tracks. There was commentary with and commentary without. And I remember people, including me on the message where we're always like – why can't Ring of Honor just do this? Why can't they just have two commentary tracks? Because that would end a lot of these arguments where if you don't like the commentary or like matches better without commentary, just listen to the no commentary audio track. But for some reason, Ring of Honor and really most wrestling promotions never kind of jumped on board with that idea. I don't even think – I don't even know if PWG does that anymore. But they used to have the option where you would have – you could have the commentary on or off. Um Matt, do you want what do you want to weigh in on this great debate of our times and also the match that happened to also occur? Yeah, I, I do. Um, okay, <laughs> so uh, this uh, I, I, on the commentary thing in general, I actually think it can work, but I wasn't crazy about it for this match. So the reason I think it can work is. I think it can work for matches where the crowd is remarkable. Like where the crowd tells such a story that they are something that you need to pay attention to as much as the match. 
And like Joe Kobashi, yeah. I'll, I'll admit that's the one that worked was the closest to working for me because it lets you hear really well how amazing that audience was. Right. Joe Kobashi and the other ones were the ROH or CZW matches because the crowds were just so animated and so vibrant. I, Joe Kobashi especially, but the other ones too. Um, you know, there are other matches where they did it, like uh, the end of Dragon Gate Six Man. I feel like they probably did it for that match because it was just hard to call anyway. Um, and then this match, I didn't really totally understand why they chose to do it in this match. For one thing, the crowd, like, they're certainly not dead. Like, they're into the match, but they are kind of quiet. They're clearly exhausted. Um, so you that can... heat Mike Johnson was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, <laughs> and also just there's they saw a lot of crazy shit on yeah. the, this show. Um, so, like, the, like, so there's a lot of quiet during this match. And I don't know. I think the announcer speaking over the quiet is useful. Also, this is a very story oriented match. They're working on each other's limbs. You know, there's a certain level of intensity. Dragon is showing a different level of like fire and maybe like an edge that he hadn't shown before things that commentary would have done well explaining and they weren't there to explain it. Um, and I think that took away from the match. Um, as far as the match itself, I th- obviously it was very good. Like they, you know, it was great to see Danielson back. Like the early stuff where they're doing the mat wrestling, and they, and like you can really see like what ROH has been missing since Danielson left, and Loki got hurt, and London left, and it's just like this really high level main event like wrestling type work. You know, AJ does it, but there weren't many guys for AJ to work with, and so that mat wrestling stuff was really refreshing for the first time in a while that you saw stuff like that. And, you know, the way they did, like, wrestled out to the floor, that was really cool. Um, the limb work was good. The selling was good. There was so much stiff stuff, like the kicks by AJ, and then this one, like, arm ringer by Dragon that literally cracked AJ's arm. I literally have no idea how they did that without it being actually, like, an injurious, injurious move. Um, I guess it was just, like, a loud, like, knuckle crack? I don't I don't know exactly. I guess similar to, like, what Marty Skrull does. Um, mm. But... Like, that was a really cool move, but I don't think I liked it as much as the match from the year before, the All-Star Extravaganza match. I don't think there was this level of escalation or intensity to, like, the finish. I think the finish kind of, you know, I don't I, I don't think it was built up to quite in the way that, um, it, you know, like the, some of the really great matches have happened to them. I don't know what you thought about that, but it was a very good match. I don't think it was quite as good as some of the best matches of the year for ROH, but it was nice to see Danielson back, and, um, you know, it was overall good. I think the commentary would have helped the experience for me personally, but I can see why people would disagree. I completely agree with all your thoughts on the match. We're simpatico when it comes to that. Um, I, w- I was going to outright ask you where did you compare this to their first Ring of Honor match, and I would agree. It's if, if that match was like a high, very good, like bordering on great, I would say this is like a low, very good. Like, and I and I, th- and I thought that match was like easily great, but yeah, yeah. So so yeah, I think this is a step below, but still really good. Um, I think the finish isn't as cool. I think that last one where um, AJ is like banging. Danielson's head and stuff to get him to do the Styles Clash. That was such a cool finish. This one, the finish is fairly cool. Like he uh, kind of does a semi Styles Clash out of an arm bar and then does the real Styles Clash. And yeah, this match is good. It's just not that next gear. And it almost feels like these two guys, especially Danielson, are known for being great at uh, 
playing it by ear where, you know, like people will brag a lot, like with Danielson matches, like all, all he did was he just winked at me and we called it all in the ring. And I think there's, 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 there's like, Joe will say like that. We did that match on a nod and a handshake. Like, just like we didn't say a single thing and we just worked it all out in the ring. And there's lots of really good things about that. But I think sometimes if you don't plan anything out, you kind of miss that final, like epic thing that you might've plotted out in your head. And to me, this just feels like two super talented guys just, making it all up as they go along and it's really fun to watch, but it's kind of missing that last big thing that maybe a young bucks or whatever would actually think, well, what's a cool finish. This just kind of feels like they organically just went, well, this is a good way to stop. And sometimes you miss that extra little boost, but it was still really good. Danielson's just so dang aggressive in this point of his career. And I love that he's still goofy, even when he's so aggressive, like he will yell at a fan and just like call them out or called like um, AJ a pussy for not hitting him hard enough. But then he'll also do the the karate kid crane kick pose during his entrance or he'll call a fan sugar pie, which I've never heard of. Before. <laughs> so like it, like even when Danielson's trying to be his most cantankerous, that goofy Brian Danielson charm just comes out. He can't suppress it. And I, I love that. And speaking um, of like calling calling names to fan, uh, people, I'm pretty sure there was a spot where AJ had Danielson in a figure four, and he called him either dragon, but I actually think he called him another word that sounds like dragon. That's a slur for uh-oh, gay people. Oh, Matt, I yeah. can tell you for a fact, he put AJ puts Brian in the figure four, and he says, "quote Give up." I pinned Dusty with it, and then he says the f word for gay people. Yeah, and it's like I mean <sighs> that's just the thing that AJ does. And yeah. it's bad that it's just a thing that he does. I hope he doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> well, he, he won't do it except maybe in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they'll, they'll save it for those shows where no one's looking. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot on the cutting room floor that recent network special. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah, so I, I thought this was really good, though. And it just – just the, and, and I feel bad for it because, like you guys were saying, it's really hard to follow stuff like – freaking scramble cage you know yeah with a with a with a, with a more technical match uh and these shows are re- and these shows are really long i, I mean i mean the roh shows not our de- not our podcast but also our podcast <laughs> this podcast thing- is the perfect length I'd say. <laughs> plus, plus or minus two hours <laughs> some would say minus uh so the only other thing in matt is we we kind of alluded to this on the last episode but Gabe, before he leaves commentary, does try and explain why Danielson, who has missed almost all of 2003 with Ring of Honor, deserves to be, walk into a number one contendership match. I felt like his excuse, his reasoning here was kind of flimsy. He says Daniel Brian gets it because he's gone, despite being gone for months, because he helped build the company. And then Gabe starts reeling off a list of classic Danielson Ring of Honor matches. And I realized half of the ones he were naming, Danielson lost. But like that was his justification. Just like he had great matches and he helped build the company. Yeah, it's true. It's like it's like a beyond kayfabe thing where like everyone knows Danielson like does deserve to be at that level in the company, but in kayfabe terms, he kind of doesn't. Yeah, it's just the problem with having like a top five thing where you're always like wins and losses matter. They they mean everything, and then you kind of have to ignore it when something like this falls into your lap. Where like oh, Danielson can come can come back. Of course, you want him in a big match right away, but. 
like, how do you explain when he hasn't wrestled for months in the company? Yeah. You know what I noticed, though? Um, just, like, about, like, the way times have changed. Like, Danielson went to, basically, he went to, like, Europe, right, to wrestle. Like, that's where he's been. Yeah. And, like, while he's there, he's basically, like, off the face of the earth. Like, nobody really watches him. Like, there's no, I don't, I haven't seen too many matches of his from that time period. Like, basically, like... As far as American wrestling fans are concerned, Brian Danielson is not in wrestling at that moment. Whereas even now, J- sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, even New Japan, he was working there too. It wasn't like if a guy worked in New Japan now and then came back to their home promotion, it wouldn't feel like a big homecoming, right? Because like you could watch the matches yeah. that they're in Live. like regularly. Like if 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 Daniel if a wrestler went to wrestle in England for a long time now for the Indies, like they wouldn't be gone. They would just be wrestling in this promotion that everyone sees. Yeah. Online in England. Like it's just and it's just it's interesting how the world has just opened up to where when you go wrestle in Germany and England for for months, you're still on the map. And at the time you in America you just were not on the map. Yeah, as crazy as it sounds, like in two thousand three, when Danielson missed like most of the year, he might as well have been coming back from Siberia. Like he should have come yeah. with a great big bushy beard and been like, Oh, oh wait. What's yeah. changed? Yeah. Like, like it, 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 it feel it felt so different back then. It's weird. Even though you would still consider that like a pretty modern time, yeah, things really have changed that much in fifteen years. Yep. But uh, that leaves us with the final segments. Cut to Colt Cabana backstage at a table with a taped-up hand drawn city backdrop for good times, great memories. Colt's guests are the Carnage crew. They brought theirs. Colt basically calls them stupid. DeVito reveals that he went to college, which surprised me. I know it shouldn't. Can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, The Carnage crew feel like the Backseat Boys stole their win tonight. They're coming for them. Colt asks the crew if they're scared of wrestling Special K after they get all drugged up. And the Carnage crew says they've been drugged up for years. Uh, Then Colt brings a a poem that he reads for the Carnage crew. I will read it. (laughs) At the nudie bar, where you can look at a thigh and blacken an eye. At the nudie bar, where they show their butt and their traps stay shut. At the nudie bar, where you can't touch a breast, but you can cave in a chest. At the nudie bar, where the girlies dance in their underpants. At the nudie bar, where the music stinks and they water the drinks. At the nudie bar, where the beer gives you gas, but the Carnage crew kicks ass. At the nudie bar, the Carnage crew liked the poem. I'm uh, almost the, certain, except for the Carnage crew part, that's from an episode of Married to Children. I think so. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Even the cave in a chest part? Uh, yes, because he was Al was there with his no ma'am group, and they <laughs> may have had a scuffle with a competing women-hating group. And this was uh, Al's like rallying cry after they fought the other people that were at the nudie bar. I think Colt even said, I did not write this. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he didn't want to take credit for the, the work of whoever the showrunner was in season nine of Married to Children. <laughs> yeah, I, um, Colt Cabana, of course, 100% babyface here. Yeah, exactly. Just a nice guy having fun. Um, next, we get a Colt. A Steve Carino promo that we are told he sent it. An on-screen graphic tells us he recorded it a, a week after the show. Carino is still happy about his attack on Homicide. He builds up his matches at the next Ring of Honor double shot, which is against Josh Daniels, which he says is just a warm-up. And the next night, he'll cripple Homicide. Carino still wants revenge for Homicide, costing him the hearing in one ear. 
He says he never liked hardcore wrestling. He never wanted a feud with Homicide. His back's against the wall, though. And then Carino says this is his last match on his Ring of Honor contract. And after that, he's gone. Win, lose, or draw. He says Ring of Honor will never book him versus Joe for the Ring of Honor title because they know Steve has Joe's number. Creel says he doesn't want the title anyway. He has, he doesn't have the time to defend it. He has too many titles to defend as it is. Creel ends by saying that CM Punk is a lot more like Steve than he wants to admit, and the future is bright for him if he goes down the right path. I thought this was pretty interesting in that they were kind of writing Creel out for a while, but yet they were still planting seeds for a CM Punk thing. Like it was, it was a weird kind of closing a door while opening it at the same time. I thought that was a little weird. I, I'd be interested to know what their original plans for that, because they can't be how it turned out. No, well, yeah, I mean, eventually, obviously, Carino was going to come back, I mean, for that title shot, but I don't think he actually ended up wrestling in ROH in 2004 at all, right? Unless he was there maybe like that, the last show of 2004, maybe? Uh, I, I, he did, I think, late have like a tag match where he teed with, with Punk, I think. Yeah, that might have been final, but that might have been final battle now that I think about it. But, but yes, he missed most of the year, including he was going to get that Joe title match, but he had to pull out because of zero one commitment. So, yeah, just, just a weird little bit there. And then we end the show, we cut back to just after the show. Gary Michael Capetta finds Jim Cornette backstage with the Briscoes. They're celebrating with their tag belts. Cornette cuts a standard Jim Cornette promo, putting over the Briscoes. He tells them to take off and have fun, so the Briscoes do. Once they're gone, Cornette brags to Gary that these kids do everything I tell them. Uh, Gary says Jim has some problems by make, in terms of making enemies of the Prophecy and Samoa Joe. Cornette says that the Prophecy was so good at telling the future, they would have known he, they were going to be losers. On Joe, he says... The Samoans, if you give them a raw fish and a coconut, they're happy people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Cornet again says, Joe was a means to an end to kick the prophecy's ass, and he doesn't want a guy already champion when he can make people champion. Then Cornet says, Joe is dumb. If he was around, he'd tell it to his face. Cornet tries to warn Jim, but again, Jim kicks him out of the room. He, he, <laughs> Gary immediately runs into Joe, who's two feet away, and catches Joe walking into Cornet's room. Cornette immediately starts sucking up to Joe, and after the door closes, we hear Cornette getting his ass kicked. We don't see it. Joe comes out and tells the cameraman he wouldn't go in there if he was them, and that ends main event spectacles. Uh, I'm going to ask for your opinions, but I'll first go to Dave Meltzer, who wrote many weeks after <laughs> the fact. I saw the Ring of Honor November 11th, I mean November 1st show, and that is a tape worth going out of your way to see. The cage wretch with Teddy Hart and Jack Evans, blah, 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 and the Baxi Boys it was nuts with the crazy dies off the cage, particularly at the end. The AJ Styles versus Brian Danielson main event was excellent, but it was a great show from start to finish, including some vintage promo work from Jim Cornette. Joe, was this a great show from start to finish, or is maybe that aged a little bit differently? It's aged poorly. Um, if you have this, of you could skip everything before the BJ Whitmer homicide uh, match, unless you unless you like seeing women getting beaten up. Go to eleven minutes thirty seconds in to watch uh, Allison Danger take the STO from Joe. But other than that, definitely not a great show from start to finish. Um, Matt, what did you? What do you think about the show? Yeah, I, I remember when I was first like you know getting my ROH collection filled in back in 05. This was one of the shows that got a lot of praise, and I liked it a lot at the time. But I th I think it doesn't hold up that well um, overall. I actually think there are a lot of other not a lot, but a few other shows from R from 2003 that are clearly better than this altogether. Uh, and as a, from a wrestling standpoint, and from a booking standpoint, I thought 
there were a number of very entertaining matches on the show. I liked the BJ Whitmer homicide. I liked the main event. I liked the scramble cage. Um, even the tag team title match, you know, was not bad for what it was. But I, I think the booking starting to drive me nuts. Like the, the whole <laughs> heel baby face stuff. Like, where are they going with this? What's the direction? What are they building to? Like, they're, like, every guy seems to have, like, six things that they're building to, but, like, are they ever going to get to any of them? Like, I, I like that at least, at least the next two shows are paying off feuds from earlier in the year that were, like, actually better built up, but there's nothing really new that, that's, in, that's that interesting. I guess the Joe Briscoe stuff is starting, which ends up having a pretty good blow-off, but um, there's just a lot of, like, like who, like, who, like, who am I supposed to be rooting for? Like, who am I supposed to like here? Um... And I actually, it's worth noting that after Feinstein leaves in uh, mid-04, or like kind of second quarter 04. It's like, well, yeah, it's like, yeah, March, April-ish, because I guess Reborn is technically when Rob is no longer there. Right. And when that happens, um, that's when Gabe really goes hard into the heel babyface stuff. And I think that was needed. I think there's just too much muddling at this point about who is what. And I, I think it hurts the the show a little bit. So I am um, so I'm I'm annoyed by the booking. Um, the matches were pretty good, but I think you can do better. I mean, it does feel like a big show. Like shows at the Rexplex definitely feel a lot bigger than shows at um, you know some rando place in uh, upstate New York. You know, um, so there is that. It does have that atmosphere, but it's I don't think it's anywhere close to as like big of a vibe as like let's say Death Before Dishonor was in the same venue. Um, but sure was an interesting show. There sure was a lot of craziness that went on both on the DVD and not on the DVD. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, you could probably, like, like Joe said, you can probably start with the BJ Whitmer homicide match and just go through the end to there. And other than the four way, I think you'll be pretty like entertained. There's lots of good stuff, but you can skip everything before that, except I would assume I would guess for some people, the Briscoes tag title match, I think that has some neat historical significance, just that's their first Ring of Honor tag title win ever. But yeah, it, it uh, I agree with you too, Matt, in the sense of this feels like a, it's not a company. I wouldn't go, I don't know if they're necessarily in a rut and I've, I've still been enjoying the shows, but it feels like a company that needs to kind of just reset certain things. And they're going to get that reset forced on them next year. So it, it just feels – I don't know. Like it, there's so many things it feels like they're just in the middle of that they don't really know like pushes and storylines that they need to just abandon and get out of. And they're just kind of muddled in them right now. To, and To yeah, bring everything around, you know, obviously it's there's a clear line here that they're building but they're giving a slow burn to the Danielson – or the, I'm sorry, the, the Christopher Daniels CM Punk stuff, right? But it seems as though so much of this was built on that homicide low-key match and or feud. And when that got taken away from them so abruptly, I think that's why everything seems so directionless. Because I think so much was supposed to spin out of that. And now that low-key is gone, it just took one piece of the puzzle to be gone for things to kind of start, you know, falling apart a little bit. They did get back on their feet in December because I think Final Battle ends up being a really good show. I have very fond memories of that one. Um, you know, they go to the bigger building. That it's their first time at the convent or the uh, the armory in Philly. But then again, as mentioned, come February and March, you know, some people you know have some problems, and then it's a lot of rebuilding over yeah. the next like 
year. Well, they, they decided that their meal ticket, as far as storylines, is going to be the Prophecy versus the Second City Saints. And obviously that can't go the way they want it to. But the other problem with that feud is, again, who are the heels? Who are the faces? Right. Yeah. If I remember but, correctly, you know, come time for like February when they do the pure title tournament, it's very clear that Punk is the the heel because they even do promos in the videos where like Danielson or I keep saying Danielson, but Christopher Daniels is cutting promos while like holding his small infant child. <laughs> so like if that's not like the baby face in the feud, I don't know what is. But that's where they end up going. Like, that's how they have to tell you that now these guys who have been trying to shut down the company for the past part of the two two years are now the good guys in this. And also that, you know, Whitmer does a heel turn by joining them, and then they're suddenly baby faces. Christopher Daniels is literally holding a baby, and you see the baby's face. I don't know how much clearer <laughs> it is than that he's a good guy. It's well, true. It's true. Well, Daniels even did kind of a face turn when he was going to do the uh, feud with Steve Carino's group where he did that one promo at, I believe, this the one-year anniversary show backstage where he was talking about how he thought he and Carino were friends and, you know, why did you hurt me like that and all this stuff. So it's just so in flux, but we'll get to cover it all. And me and Matt will start to cover it all with the next episode where we will cover the conclusion, not the conclusion of this podcast, unless oh, Matt finally God. comes to his senses. But, uh, <laughs> the, the conclusion is just the name of the show. And it is the conclusion of the Raven CM Punk feud. Plus it has AJ Styles and Samoa Joe taking on the Briscoes for the tag titles in a match. I think Joe has said he really enjoyed. He's on record saying that's one of his favorite tag matches of this time period. Um, if you want to get in contact with us uh, at Trevor Dame or at Mayor MGF through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. We post on a bunch of message boards like Pro Wrestling Only, Figure Four, blah, 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 Voices of Wrestling. And uh, Joe, do you have anything you want to plug? We covered at the top uh, your podcast, but would you like to plug that again? Or Yeah, sure. So longboxheroes.com is the catch-all for all the podcasts that I do. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I have stuff come out. Wednesday is the comic book show. Straight up comic book, kind of talking about the week of what we read, the news and stuff. Because things go on in the comic books. You know, the TVs and the movie shows. There's these little flappy books that all those things derive from. And me and my buddy Todd talk about them. Thursday is At Odds with Wrestling. My friend Adam and I just kind of talk about the week that was in WWE, mostly, because that's what he watches, so that's what I kind of watch. And we got off into tangents, because we both have very similar paths in the world of our fandom of wrestling. And then on Fridays, uh, it's After Dark, like we would bullshit before we'd do our regular show. So we just turned that into a podcast, then we had to make that into a thing, where this most recent episode that came out, we talked about the 1984 should-have-been-cult classic film, Johnny Dangerously, starring uh, Michael <laughs> Keaton and Joe Pitts. Uh, we've done other movies such as like Dragnet, uh, Repossessed with Linda Blair and Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> so we'll talk about shit like that. Linda, uh, that movie, I rec- like. I recommend that only because there's so many cameos in it. Like, based on the cameos in that movie, you could tell the week in 1989 where they filmed the movie. <laughs> uh, even a part at the end where Leslie Nielsen is the. Pr- it's a it's a parody of uh, The Exorcist. The Exorcist, yeah. Leslie Nielsen is doing the battle with Linda Blair's character, and the commentary is done for this by Mean Gene and Jesse Ventura. Wow. I I don't know why they never plug this on WWF TV. It's maybe because uh, Mean Gene says uh, she's got a nice set of tits, but I would put a bag on it to have sex with her. 
Wow. I I, they kept it out. But again, we talk about stuff like that. Just random nonsense. Longboxheroes.com for all my podcasting stuff. And guys, again, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, Thanks for spending like uh, with the equivalent of like four nights with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I you do three podcasts a week, but this is the equivalent of like eight podcasts in a night. So thank you so much for doing this. You were great. Yeah, you were and really you great. You were such a good guest. Thank you. So uh, until next time, it'll be me and Matt. And don't guess next time. We'll be just the two of us all comfy and cozy and hopefully with you guys snuggling up with us. Until then, goodbye.